Yes, yes, y'all, it's going down right now. Episode 179 of the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror podcast is coming at you live. I am your host, the king of Skype, and still the toxic offender, a.k.a. Moods. Yeah. And of course, I have my lazy hetero life mate by my side tonight, the Mexicant, a.k.a. Double Still Working J, a.k.a. JP. What's going on, I'm essential, damn it. (laughs) You are essential, man. Well, at least you still have a job. You know, I'm like, I know I, I'm, I, I debate it because I'm like, I would like to not be working right now, but at the same time, like some people still haven't got any unemployment and that whole thing's kind of up in the air. So I'm kind of, you know, okay with it for now. You know what I mean? And honestly, um, at first it sucked because I was running into a lot of people from, you know, New York and New Jersey and, uh, honestly, all the hotspots, Rio was like huge i ran into so many old people coming back from florida going back to ontario so well i actually live with one (laughs) because when that shit hit the fucking fan the wife had just flown back from new york the day before shit like got locked down it was fucking crazy so she so the government obviously forced her to to quarantine for 14 days and shit but but then right at that point everything just fucking just shut down right everything non-essential which was including us because i own a salon so which um which totally sucks but uh to be honest man our government's been pretty good about everything like they've um you know for business owners like myself you know we generally can't collect ei right because we're just you know we're business owners you can't do that so um but they set up a program for people that are business owners and you can collect a couple thousand a month and then they also set up a program for businesses to help pay their their rent also which was like a forty thousand dollar kind of loan which you don't have to pay back for a couple years so you know the government actually came through really really huge they really wanted to help out the smaller person and shit and i was like quite fucking amazed by this because you know when everything started shutting down and shit man the wife was having a fucking hard time man that's why we didn't record for a couple weeks she was just i mean we've worked our whole lives for this right Mm-hmm. And to have everything kind of taken from you and just like a fucking you know snap of a finger is is pretty devastating. So we didn't know like because you know for us we don't have any any funds coming in besides my five dollars of YouTube money and my fucking Patreon money. <laughs> so, let's face it, man, that shit ain't paying for anything. But uh, I just kind of joked about that, and then but uh, you know everything's kind of it's taken a few weeks, and but you know as of next week we'll have everything sorted and at least all our bills are getting paid. Like we could still pay our rent on our salon because we. Should down like may or i mean uh march fucking like 15th or so it was, it was like halfway in the month and the second half of the month is where we make all of our bank right so but we'd already paid rent but then we still had to pay for april because our our landlords for that you know they they hadn't worked out anything with the bank and the government hadn't come up with these policies yet and stuff so we still had to pay you know our fucking five thousand dollar rent you know out of our pocket and shit i'm like fuck we can't keep doing this man it's gonna break us right like this is crazy yeah right yeah. so we so we paid for this month but now you know for the next coming months we have this loan and stuff and they're really good about it and stuff and um so everything kind of worked itself out it, it just feels like we're on this like kind of house arrest vacation right now which is it's been all right you know i mean surprisingly me and the wife we we tend to argue a lot because she's a she's a very very high type one personality type person she has to be in control of everything and so we we clash a lot with that but honestly in the last month we've been kind of you know facing each other we i don't think i've spent this much time with her in like fucking 12 years of marriage man it's crazy uh we've actually been really good man we've been not fighting and shit so and but it's been tough because you know the kid's not in school and you know like we're we have to homeschool we're fucking homeschooling right now 
It's like, mm-hmm. it's crazy. And I thought like, you know, with all this free time, you know, I was sitting at home and shit, I could fucking make ton of videos and, and do all this shit and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I realized that this house is so goddamn noisy. I have three dogs. I have a loud kid who has like ADHD and I got a fucking wife that all she does is talk. And I'm like, I can't even think <laughs> dude my house is just like it's a fucking wreck so but i have been trying to get some videos out and stuff and kind of keep myself busy with this but uh it's kind of coming to you know it's kind of hit reality now you know it's kind of hit me that this is reality it's going to be for a while and stuff and now it's just kind of settling in with the shit that we're going to be losing this summer like all of our vacations like you know mm-hmm. i was kind of joking i had yeah bro. well i was conventions I was, planned homie oh man. like <laughs> It was just, uh, you know, I had, I think, two conventions, three conventions planned, which I've only went to two conventions in my life. So, you know, I over doubled <laughs> my convention going to, you know, this this year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the drive-in had a stacked lineup this year. I was waiting for them to announce the Camp Blood 6 drive-in uh, in, you know, the, the other one that we go to, yeah. uh, which is, you know, typically slasher based. Uh, like this was going to be an awesome year for me and Carly to like really do and, and plan a bunch of stuff. And it just all got the rug got t- taken out from under all of us. And, you know, it's just been, you know, honestly, I'm dealing with it better than a lot of people. Like I'm almost enjoying the um, simpler life, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I just go to work, come home, watch films, uh, sometimes record stuff. Uh, I, me and Carly did a video. I don't know if you caught it. Did you catch it by chance? The video we put out? No, I didn't even see that you put one out. Yeah, it's not on my channel. It's on the His and Hers Movie Podcast channel. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's a marathon video. So oh. what you and Dylan do, shouted you out in it. Mikey Fish made one. You know, three people have made one. Uh, you haven't been around lately, but Mikey Fish was the first one. He shouts out your video as inspiration. And then I made one. And then uh, I think, was it Keith made one? So, some Another person made one, too. Mm, cool. Um, yeah, but ours ended up an hour and 14 minutes away. <laughs> We only did six films in our marathon. Wow. (laughs) It was more of a 12-hour marathon instead of 24. Um, But we may try a 24 one. But I'll be honest, Carly fell asleep in the sixth movie. So 24 hours would be a little rough for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) I've done a 24-hour marathon before. 14 films with Joe Bob while live streaming. So I know what it's like. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it, check it out, dude. It, it's pretty fun. Um, it was it was definitely I've wanted to do one ever since I seen you put one out. So we did our first step in trying one, and and we probably wouldn't have been able to do that if we still ha- were going to movies every week and stuff like that. Which is another thing, theaters are shut down. You know, that's something that I went to the movies almost every single week. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's crazy. I have been watching like a ton of films though. You know, more than usual because I'm not out doing anything not going out to restaurants or anything like that um i'm actually uh, i had a couple bad weeks there before the the quarantine but uh i want i'm averaging about 15 films a week right now in the last three weeks so that's way higher than i ever do normally uh in fact the best week of the year for me was 13 and that was the first week of january and then i hit 15 15 16 back to back to back uh which is about you know pr- pretty good uh so i actually might break my record this year which is uh like 420 something or, or 402 402 is the record for me i know you're you're probably almost at 400 huh <laughs> uh you know man actually like the lot yeah since the quarantine started man i've watched a lot I'm, I'm at 267 for the year right now um 
I've already watched like since April started. So in the first 10 days we're recording this April 10th, I've already watched 43 movies. <laughs> wow. Wow. So yeah, that's like, yeah, average, that's, you know, like pretty much four a day, you know? Um, yeah, yeah I'm, day, I'm but. at 22 in, in the 10 days. So what, well over, you know, two over two a day for me. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, it's pretty cool. Uh, I've watched a lot of 85 movies. I, my, I think I had, Mine were, I think I was at 25 last month or something. So I've watched about, I've doubled that. And I, I'm, I think I'm kind of done with the 85 prep, which will be our next episode. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I'm, I, I've watched pretty much all the gems I, I, that I know of, um, which I did just hit a couple of good ones that I was waiting for. So I normally don't rewatch stuff, but I was thinking about actually rewatching, you know, my top 15 or something to see if it shuffles them at all. Because, uh, I, I normally don't do that, but since I'm kind of want to end a little early, I have a full week. So I'm, I might do that. I don't know. I might, I might do that. Yeah. Rewatches is something that you never do, man. That's crazy. Yeah. Well this year in particularly, I've seen most of the, most of the top 15, 20 films a bunch growing up. So I do know them, but, uh, I did the opposite of what I normally do. I usually prep with films I haven't seen and then end on the films I have seen. But this time I watched the films that I was most familiar with early. Uh, and that's that we started that last June. So almost a full year ago, um, we kind of, we kind of dropped the ball on doing a fast turnaround on this one. Yeah, I know this one kept getting pushed. There was a bunch of things that came up and stuff and yeah, I know I, I probably should do some rewatches, but I don't really think I need to, to be honest, but, uh. Mm-hmm. I'm getting close to the goal that I set watching 85 films. I got about 67 down. So I'm just going to putter away at some of the shitters at the bottom of the fucking barrel and hit that 85 goal and then be content with that. But, you know, going in 85 was such an oddball year to pick because I mean, if judging it was by, our first, it literally was an oddball year because it's the only year we've done. That is an odd number. Yeah. Well that, and also like, how, how weird is that? It is weird. It 86, is weird. 96, 76, 72 82 2002 68 like what the hell kind of randomizer is that i know dude it's so weird it's 85 kind of, it's is a definitely an odd man out it's a like i'm surprised randomizer. if we if i'm uh, like i almost want to put money on it that we're gonna hit 92 next because it's like just seems natural <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i mean like i said before though man if you're familiar with the show and you've you know even if you've listened to like our top 50 personal favorite films of all time kind of list and stuff and if you think back on that when 85 came up i was like man half my fucking list is like already given away you know Mm -hmm. kind of thing right because if you know if you follow that shit and you're like well if these are your favorite films of all time they've got to be on this top 10 85 list kind of thing right and i was like jesus christ but you know still a fun year to prep for though i'm not really you know i can tell you there's a big change in my list that yeah. I didn't expect. So really, oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been fun. You know, I've been I've really mixed it up. I started with you know I I usually do that. I don't just you know start with all the ones I haven't seen before, which isn't really a whole lot. I I am starting to pick some at the end here that I haven't seen before, but uh, you know, and then go to the ones I watch. I I kind of mix mix it up. You know, ones that I know that are going to be in my top ten. I just kind of sprinkled in throughout the the year of prep for this show for an eighty five show <laughs> that was like pretty much already set. In, most of my list was already set in stone. Like as we picked it, <laughs> you know, it's like fucking bizarre, man. Really, really weird. But I don't know. I'm kind of hoping. I wouldn't mind going back to the seventies again. To be honest, the honestly, bro, just- I'm I'm kind of with you. Like I didn't 
enjoy the, pre- the all the prep for the 270 shows we did do um, at the time. And I, but oddly enough, I have fond memories of the prep now, you know, at the time I didn't, mm-hmm. but I'm like, I could do 70, 71, 78, especially 78 or 74 would be fun. But you know, I'm 79. I'm, I'm down. I'm down the return to the seventies. Normally I dread them. That's usually my least favorite one just because, well, one, this is, this has become a problem, um, in most of the years in the seventies, but uh, more so seven. I want to say seventy six was worse for this, but transfers, right? Like it's hard to find good transfers that don't look horrible for some of the films in the seventies. Like you run out of like good transferred films, like pretty early. Yeah, I mean it, it is hit and miss. I think if we got a year like nineteen seventy four, that one's been pretty well represented by the niche companies. And there's a lot of films that you know got the royal treatment with the good transfers and stuff. But of course, you're always going to find tons and tons of films that don't have those like the really obscure ones. But seventy four would be a great year to come up. That would be a fun because yeah. there's a there's a ton of re- I think that's probably maybe it's got to be one of the best years of the seventies. Just there's just tons of great films, so that would be fun. But who knows? I mean, with with my luck, it's gonna end up being like two thousand six or some shit, and there's like seven thousand movies to watch. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just too much, man. Like it's I, it's kind of why I like the older years because you know the the output of films isn't as great, and you know you you feel like you you can kind of finish off the majority of what you need to watch kind of thing. And, you know, it's, it's more about, it's, it's a little selfish on my part though, too, because, you know, with a year like 2007, where they, there's probably six, 7,000 films legitimately on INDB, you know, chances are, you're not going to be able to see them. Chances are, fuck, of course you're not gonna be able to watch <laughs> yeah, all those fucking movies, <laughs> but you know, I mean, there could be some major, major hidden gems in there that no one's heard of, talked about mm-hmm. whatever and stuff. And that, that's what kills me. Right. And, you know, and it forces myself and I just don't want to like overdo it and watch like 300 movies. And I'm like, holy crap, dude, like I've watched like 70% shitty movies. Like what the fuck am I doing with my life kind of thing? But you know what I'm saying? Just the output is just crazy in those years, but still kind of fun. It'd still be fun I, to do I wouldn't years. mind returning to the 90s either for me because I just think those years are really easy to prep for because you usually have about – literally not even joking about like 10 to 15 you know, good movies. The uh, early 90s are a little bit different I think between 90 and 93. Yeah. Like those years aren't bad. Like I mean – I mean, the and what I mean by not bad, I mean like the output is a little bit more – uh, the quality of film obviously dips, but I think there's a little bit more films. It's like, you know, after 96, like 97, 98, 99, like those years, there's not even a lot of films. Well, I, honestly, I'm going to be honest. Um, 98 was and 99 were surprising to me um, because I did do them on the Teapot's summer series last year. And uh, there was actually more depth than I thought for those particular years um, of just n- maybe not great films, but definitely like good films. Like there's some, there's some gems there, like, um, eight millimeter and stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, that one was a, a nice watch. And then th- 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 we found some, some surprises there for sure. Um, but yeah, I think like, you know, maybe like 95, 97, 98, yeah. very bad <laughs> 98 it's like atrocious like I, I think i was joking one time about 98 saying like i don't even think i could make a top 10 list like, i'm at 97 yeah, that's 97 maybe that's 97 i was like i was looking at the films and i'm like you know obviously you could make a list but to be actually you know happy with it and enjoy what you're looking you know at you know your final product kind of thing i don't think so man well, we're definitely going to get one of those eventually because um we also throw in a year from 
you know, from, you know, the thirties to the, to 59, basically to, to 67. Yeah. Pre 60. Yeah. And, and, and literally some of those years are actually will be like a ranking, like the top three films of the, you know, because there's literally, there's literal some years that have like three horror films or yeah. two. Remember, I was actually, I was, you know, I was working on a new series a couple years ago that I just never materialized on my channel, of course. And uh, I was kind of going through the years. I think it was like 1950 or 51 or something. There was like legitimately like two movies that were yeah. like not even like they could be classified as horror. But I mean, still, it's not a list. That's that's mm-hmm. just that's just. Yeah. Yeah, the the random year that we got this time because I do randomize and put one of those years in every time to the randomizer is 1936, and I think there's around like 12 to 14 horror films. There's definitely some Universal films that came out that year. So Dracula's Daughter is one of them, yeah. but yeah, 1936. Um, I'll actually look at them right now. So 1936 uh, has. Um, Dracula's daughter, the walking dead. And now keep in mind, like just cause they're listed on IMDb doesn't mean they're not lost or even possible to find, uh, the devil doll, the invisible Ray revolt of the zombies, the man who lived again, uh, Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of fleet street, uh, a ill Caso Vladimir, um, (laughs) cobweb hotel, the one of the versions of the golem, Shadow of Chinatown, Murder in the Red Barn, and The Crimes of Stephen Hawk. There's a couple of other ones, Face the Fog, a couple of foreign ones. So, you know, (laughs) there's enough to make a top 10. I I almost wish that one of those years would come up just because you know that it would be like, okay, guys, we have to watch these 14 films. So what we're going to do here is we're going to prep for two weeks. And then we'll be back at you with the next top 10 list. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like it, it would be kind of cool to do that a little yeah. bit. You know, it's more, it's almost like a ranking, like, because everybody's going to watch all the films of it. If there's only 14 films, yeah. everybody's going to watch all 14 of them. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's cool funny. though. It's cool. Um, but yeah, we, we, uh, we, I'm at I'm, my most exciting thing about doing, about finally getting to a top 10 is finding out what the next top 10 is. <laughs> Yeah, I always look forward to that too. I mean, I you know I obviously enjoy watching the movies and stuff too. I, I honestly I enjoy you know listening to what other people's lists are. Yeah, me too. I, I think that this year, honestly, I'm be honest. Out of all the years we've done, I think this is the most straightforward year. I think we will have the least amount of titles total picked. Well, I can I can pretty. I mean, there's five of us on the show. And just thinking on who is on that show and their tastes and stuff, I can see at least six films being repeated from all five hosts. Yeah, yeah, which so that, leaves very few. It does you know, alternate titles, but but that's kind of the fun of it. It's like what other movies are going to make up that top ten? And I bet you, you'd be surprised on some of the films that make it and don't make people's list. Actually, yeah, at yeah. this point, so I don't know. Uh, it's fun, you know. And with the 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 way that the top tens are. Um, it's always fun to, you know, at the end of the day to if there's one of those titles where you think you saw everything and then somebody comes with some gem that you never heard of and you're like, what the hell? Like, I thought I saw everything. Mm-hmm. And then also you got like um, Dave's coming back and, and he's been great on the top 10 that he did with us. Uh, and I, I, I would ho- I'm going to extend the invitation for him to keep coming on those because um, 
he's very funny and and he honestly dude like he does not slack with the prep like i give him mad credit he's he's uh he's a, a true well, um, he's only dedicated been, guest. he's only been <laughs> prepping for you know since the last top 10 show which is a year uh top 10 19 show and he's already like at 100 yeah but so. he's been watching a lot of exploitation i mean they're not you know it's it's yeah it's I that have realm too, of films honestly. it's that realm of films but you know good for him so i took a long time i took like three months off because i did a lot of prep until i think we hit like october and i took a couple months off and i just kind of spaced it well back i there, always so. want most of my prep to be before we record the show yeah i don't want to i don't want it to be a year beforehand because then well, i don't remember anything i watched <laughs> well originally we were supposed to be rec- i think it like I September September and then it got pushed to like January then it was February then it was like now you know it's fucking crazy yep. so yeah so hopefully we for sure get it done because I, I want to move on and get the next year um which is well, always super exciting it's a week away you know I mean if yeah. something happens I mean even if something happens to one of the ho- I think we're just gonna still go through with it you know yeah and there's still five people on the show uh potentially six lists if we make a group list i don't know what the fuck we're gonna do but yeah it doesn't really matter i mean someone can't make it or whatever it is what it is so yeah we'll probably just roll through with that one unless it's you or me <laughs> yeah no i think i think i'll be pretty much good to go because i don't know man i'm not really doing anything else but sitting at home yeah fucking blows uh-huh so. and you know honestly dude like i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty hyped for it like i, I think as of right now we all kind of need stuff like this in our lives a little bit and like like you were saying you're trying to do videos and stuff i think the best thing to do is to stay active with your mind you know like do some creative stuff and mm-hmm. and it'll help everybody you know get through this as as easy as possible it seems like when i'm doing stuff that's when i when i'm feeling the best that's why that's why i'm telling jeremy <laughs> He needs to do. He needs to like do more things instead Stop of just watching watch the, the news twenty four hours a day. It's like, I mean, you know, you can keep your mind busy and you know keep your minds off of all the shit that's going on and stuff as as much as you possibly can. But I mean, there's still moments like this. Like I was thinking about it today. I was like, fuck, man, I'd be getting back from Mexico tomorrow. You know, like I fucking totally missed out on that trip and. You know, speaking of fucking shit this year, man, like, man, we've already canceled like seven things. But the, the funny thing about canceling all this stuff is that we just got our money back. <laughs> so that wasn't too bad. Yeah, yet. that's good. That, at so, least you didn't invest a bunch of money into something that you couldn't. Get, well, I mean, get in a back. sense, I mean, with the with the Mexico trip, though, man, it's just a it's just a credit through WestJet and you have like two years to use. And I'm like, well, when the fuck are we going to go anywhere, man? You know, it takes <laughs> so long to recover from this. So that kind of blew. But it just hurt my soul because like Horicon got canceled and then. You know, it was supposed to go into Cinema Wasteland in October for my 40th birthday, and that's not probably happening. And it's like, fuck, man. Like, mm. just one of those fucking years, man. You know, coming yeah, out the worst I, year of my life last year into this one, I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. Nice. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, man. I, I, I definitely hear you. But, um, you know, I think things will eventually get back to normal. And then, and then we'll all appreciate this stuff even more that we have to do and things like that and honestly i'll probably do more stuff because i'm just like well i kind of slack a little bit on actually doing things i just started to do more things but Mm -hmm. like once they're taken away and you can't do them it kind of makes you want to live life a little bit more full to where you're truly doing everything you want to do so that, that that's one thing that i've learned from all this yeah absolutely absolutely but yeah so uh i i know that 
you know, this episode's a little bit different. This is a, a what we watched episode. It's volume seven, actually. It's a dub, 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 volume seven. Yes, this dub, is some um, dub, dub. <laughs> we, we did this one kind of oddbally. Um, we're recording this intro right now, but all the uh, solo dub reviews that you're about to hear were actually recorded by ourselves in our in our houses. So I did. I pulled a picture up of you on Facebook. Uh, just so that I, I didn't feel like I was completely by myself. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, there will be a couple bonus reviews. That obviously, we're going to be on together and stuff. But yeah, just a different type of show. We wanted to put something out. This is We were thinking about putting this out um, a couple weeks ago. It's just things got jumbled, whatever, but it's mm-hmm. coming. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I hope you guys enjoy those reviews. Yeah, there's lots. And there's like 28 solo reviews between me and JP. So Nice. Yeah. Hey yo, it's about that time for the 22 Shots crew To get buck wild and do what we do You got that fatty in hand, so throw us a few And we gon' hit your ass up with a bonus review Alrighty, so moving into the first bonus review here For episode 179 uh, is actually the 100th anniversary of this uh, film. Uh, from 1920, we got the original captain, <laughs> the captain, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. The captain? What the fuck am I reading? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy to, to say, though, the 100th anniversary of a movie? Yeah. Was it 1920 or 1919? Uh, 1920. Yeah. Wow, man, that's crazy, dude! And, and 100th actually, anniversary. It technically just had its hundredth anniversary too. It says February twenty seventh, nineteen twenty. It came out in Germany, so so it debuted then. Um, that is something fucking else, man. That really is crazy. You just don't get to say that a lot, you know. So pretty interesting. Uh quick little synopsis on it, and it is quick because I'm going to read off the really short one. Hypnotist Dr. Caligari uses uh, a somnambulist. Caesar to commit murders. Basically, that is a fancy word for sleepwalker. I guess they use fancy ass words back in the day. Um, I don't know why you can't just put use as a sleepwalker. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck's up with that. Um, but yeah, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920, uh, German expressionism film. Uh, I believe it's, you know, it's one of the very first of its kind. It was a, a very kind of short lived um, type of genre of film, I guess, in a sense. I believe it ran f- from, I, I want to say like 1960, 1980, or no, it would have been 1918 to about 1926 is, I think, kind of the era of the expressionism film. Um, because the reason why these films came about in about 1918 is because I believe during World War One, which 1918 would have been the end of the war, uh, I think about 1916, the German government actually banned the import of films so they they had like nothing to watch in those days so essentially it created the you know the german artist the german director and you know the kind of birth the german expressionism film you know creating this new kind of abstract world and designs and stuff so kind of interesting how that comes about you know sometimes the government can you know i mean it kind of it was fucking the people but at the same time created something pretty interesting and unique also so um yeah, and the director was actually Jewish and and fled 
um, Germany during the, I believe, Second World War at some point. Yeah, that would have been a good war to flee if you were Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Um, uh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's brutal. Um, well, what are your thoughts on The Cabinet Doc? Have you, you, you've seen it before, right? I have never seen this film, actually. Oh, okay, um, let me ask you something first. How did you watch this movie? Because I watched the Kino Classics Blu-ray, and this is the most incredible thing I have ever seen for transfer-wise. This thing is this is, the one that has like is it very yellow in certain scenes and stuff like that? It's just like perfect, dude. It looks, I, I, it, okay. it, it looks like the movie was fucking restored. Like it, it looks like it was done twenty years ago, and rest- it's fucking crazy how good this transfer is. It's like I'm up, I'm watching this thing, and the wife is like, she's like, "How old is this movie?" I'm like, "It's actually a hundred years old." She's like, "It, it almost crazy. looks like a film that was done today, looking that style, like they were trying to make it look like that." Yeah, dude, it's that fucking like i'm just i've seen this movie many many times before and uh i've always watched kind of shitty shoddy fucking you know in um public domain transfers and stuff right because it's generally what we got but this is just incredible man like it really brings out everything the colors are vibrant but you really get to see what this beautiful transfer is the designs and you know what kind of exploited and what german expressionism actually really kind of meant with the set designs and stuff because it really just it it bounces at you, man. It just really kind of sticks out. It's crazy. So all right. So I actually didn't watch that version. Mm. Um, but I okay. So I watched the version on Tubi. Um, because I do love Tubi. Tubi. If you if you're not familiar with Tubi, it's one of the best. I don't know if you guys have it up there, but in my opinion, it's it's it rivals Shutter in terms of like what's on like like finding cool titles on there. And yeah. Stuff like you know that. what, man, I've, 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 I've used Tubi for, you know, probably a couple of years and stuff. It's funny though, because Tubi is one of those kind of free, you know, uh, streaming sites. And it's odd because they still follow like the, the regional shit. Cause some of the movies that are on the American Tubi aren't on the Canadian one. <laughs> I fucking yeah. shit you're not and it's like well they still do it the classic way where they they license the film and then they they make ad revenue off of the ads yeah so they're, they're just um, not at that point where they're charging people a streaming service fee you know? yeah i i love tubi i think it's one uh, one of the the best things out there for horror fans right now um but i will say this in some in in a lot of cases i don't think any of the titles are true like 1080p hd i think they're like 720 the ones that are hd Mm -hmm. but also uh the chances of you getting the best transfer of a film are not the highest so like let's say a film was released by scream factory you'll probably get like the old mgm dvd transfer or something uh and that was the case with you know this this film Mm. uh the cabinet dr caligari which i watched on tubi it definitely wasn't the kino transfer and i know this because i went and um i was a little confused by the film so i went and um watched like more of it on youtube and that transfer was you know i watched the the different different clips and stuff from it and and it was i night and day difference in quality because i didn't know that that transfer was that good i just i figured a hundred year old film was probably not gonna look like when i clicked the tubi version i figured that was the best transfer out there i knew that a company released it i couldn't remember if it was like kino or film detective or something but um now that i saw the kino version though and how clear it is, I could tell that watching that version would be a much better experience. I can tell that watching that version, you would understand what's going on even a little bit better. Um, which this film is 
different in terms of narrative wise it's not a hundred percent um linear uh which is crazy to think that there's like some non-linear like flashback scenes and stuff Mm -hmm. in a hundred year old film I mean, that's way before Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> I mean, th- this shit <laughs> set the present. I mean, honestly, film was such in its, you know, in its early infancy, really, you know, making these type of, you know, abstract narratives and shit. Like everything back in those days generally was just kind of linear, straightforward. You know, what you see is kind of what you get in this one. And then this film comes along and, th- and that's part of the reason why it's, you know, one of the most influential films of all time, because I mean, not only did it create, you know, such interesting uh, design, you know, with sets and, and the way it utilized sound and just everything about the expressionism, right? It, you know, it created that whole thing. But narrative wise, like what the fuck, right? It's so crazy. Like this thing has twists in it and shit. It's it's mm-hmm. really crazy, man. It's just the way it shot everything. You can see how so many directors just pulled from this. You know, it's kind of funny rewatching this with you know the such you know the crazy transfer and and seeing the set designs. You can't, I can't help but notice that you know. Um, you know, if you ever watch Beetlejuice and the set designs in that is taken <laughs> yep. right from Caligari, man. It's identical you know, I never to it. Put it together directly in my head, but I always thought that yeah. when watching Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of this, but I never like truly oh. was like, Oh yeah. Same but day. um honestly, dude, like I, I hadn't heard of this film obviously forever. Um, like you do with any like Phantom of the Opera silence films mm-hmm. or you know, any of the big silence silent films from the, the era. Um, and I always feel like they're overblown. I'm always like, uh, it's probably not as good as everybody says. And I, honestly, I went into this film expecting it to be like probably, you know, just this another solid silent film that, you know, I didn't never really know how to rate them. But honestly, I was completely shocked. Like this is deserves the love and praise that it gets because this was a like even narrative. Well, I expected a weak, flimsy narrative. Like I expected, um, you know, uh, things to not really make sense this is a complete movie there's really nothing wrong with it you know it's a it's yeah. a it's a real movie mm-hmm. um so i was actually very taken back by the quality of the film like really this movie probably shouldn't go where it does you know narrative wise and and just kind of i mean could you imagine watching this shit back in 1920 you know basing it off of what you've seen before because everything like i said would have been linear would have been kind of straightforward what you see is what you get kind of thing and then they throw this at you this must have blown people's fucking lids. I mean, even shitters what, out. E- yeah, blown their shitters <laughs> out, man. But even you watching this movie for the first time, were you like shocked at the fucking end of the movie? Yeah, dude, I completely. Right? I, I, I mean, yeah, because it, you know, the the sort of ambiguous, like it just seems like something ahead of its time that you wouldn't seen back then, you know. Just to come up with the whole idea that, like, I don't really want to give shit. I mean, I know it's 100 years old, but I I feel like there's still people out there that haven't seen it before. And Case in point. It's exactly right. And I just really wouldn't want to ruin something as amazing as this. You know, it's pretty crazy, but it is pretty cool, like, how they set it up and stuff. And you think back, like, right after, you know, the reveal happens in the end and stuff. And you're like, oh, fuck, man. Like, what the fuck? That's crazy. Like, you would never in a million years ever expect that to happen. And I love that, man. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I think they set this movie up great. I think the performances are really great in it, too. Um, and one thing I really enjoy about this oh, movie. Oh, Caligari's creepy. And so is Caesar. Totally great characters, man. Caligari, the casting is amazing. Um, he just he just looks so fucking, like, evil. And I just, Werner Krause is like, 
he just has that look to him, man. It's crazy. And the dude that plays Caesar too, man, he's awesome. Um, I remember reading the at the beginning. They're like my friend Alan. I was like Alan. I was like, that doesn't sound like I just expected like Verschmaning or something. Some kind of German name. Or something. <laughs> it's Alan. Maybe yeah. Alan's German. I don't know. But right? I was just like Alan. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, but, yeah, man, I mean, the casting's great. And, you know, obviously the set designs are the biggest seller and, oh, and the yeah. way the color schemes are in this, because the set designs are so, even to this day, you know, a hundred years later are so unique in itself. Like they're so fucking cool. It adds so much flair and so much flavor to it. It's not just like, you know, the it's kind of set in, you know, in this kind of reality and like, you know, in standard reality, but visually it doesn't seem like it is, but you got to remember they're also like at this kind of circus type deal and shit like that. But just the idea of coming up with everything that's kind of off kilter is like, it's almost, you know, if you really think hard, it's about nightmare, it, dude. it's nightmare cinema. It's, it's nightmare logic. It's nightmare inducing. Like it's just pure nightmare. It's pure nightmare. And I love that because it said it like a circus type deal and it, you know, adding that kind of flair to it. But it's kind of interesting, like, you know, how everything's kind of off kilter. And then, you know, when the reveal happens in the end, you're like, oh, fuck, man, the whole set design just kind of goes with where the narrative goes. Oh, yeah. Too. It, exactly. It's really like, cool. You think it's like, what's this pretentious bullshit? Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, it's like, no, it's it's woven into the narrative. It's literally going to it's li- the whole set design is telling you that this shit is going somewhere else. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, that's uh, I mean, honestly, dude, so like, cool. I'm not joking, man. Like this is I this I can totally see why this is considered one of the best horror films. Like it it really is such a like I can't, it's it's unfathomable that it's 1920. A hundred years ago, Dude, I, it, it was I honestly, I was like completely shocked and taken back by it. I will own that Kino eventually too, because, um, <sighs> like I've seen the footage and it, it's so much better than what's on Tubi. And, you know, I, I'm, I would probably say this is definitely my first or second favorite silent film now, uh, just after one watch. Yeah, man, this one's always been up there for me, but you know, unfortunately I'd never watched this Blu-ray before. I'd only ever seen, like I've had the Blu-ray for a long time and I just, never got around to checking it out because you know i'd seen the movie before i wasn't i was kind of like with where you were you know i'm like you know it's it's a film it's 100 years old i've seen nosferatu i've seen a lot of these older films some of them really great transfers but when you watch the transfer and what kino did on the restoration on this you're like okay my shitter is gonna hurt for like two weeks man like it is fucking unbelievable how the transfer literally transformed the movie right before my eyes it's crazy you can see everything and it's just it's so beautiful it sounds great you know like the music the soundtrack and that's one thing about this movie that i really enjoy also a lot of the old old school a lot of the silent film era films have very kind of repetitive and annoying soundtracks this one actually feels very hoary you know it has it has different tones to it It, you know it has different melodies and shit like that where a lot of the films generally don't have that they will have like 16 bars and it'll just kind of repeat and it'll be this piano fucking riff throughout the whole thing (laughs) it'll speed up it'll speed up with you know uh with the with the film and shit like that and you're just like oh my god this is so cheesy at times but this one doesn't do that it, t- it kind of does everything properly you know whoever scored this uh, just did a fantastic job and kudos on that shit but man I-, I can't stress enough if you're gonna watch this movie watch this kino transfer uh i know i've heard jeremy say it too he even said it's like one of the best transfers he's ever seen and i can't even disagree with that at all i mean given that this movie is 100 years old and what you're seeing on this is truly remarkable it's unfucking believable so yeah it's just crazy to think like film has been preserved for a hundred years like i'd just be scared when you go to do that scan it's just going to turn to dust or something you know what i mean it's just like wow dude right that's crazy and to, to get it that looking that good yeah um 
I know Kino does. I've, I actually don't buy many Kinos. Like, my Kino collection is like maybe six titles or something like that. But I, I do need to start picking up more Kinos. I know they do those sales sometimes where they're usually like $11 Blu rays or something like that. Mm-hmm. If this one pops up, I definitely want to grab it. Um, and if not, I'll get it some sometime because, uh, yeah, I was really impressed by this film. And this, who did this come to us from? Do you know? Um,. I don't know. Ratchet Command. Ratchet Command. Okay, cool. Same but how about who gave us American Psycho, which we'll be doing uh, in a couple weeks, months, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know what I've always loved about this movie, man, is like, you know, you got to ask the question to the sleepwalker, right? It's like, you know, when am I, you know, like, what does he ask? Like, how long am I going to live? Does he ask? Something like that. Yeah. And then he's like, no, you're going to die by dawn or in the dawn kind of thing, right? It's just like, that kind of setup is is so man just the narrative is just so perfect in this man it's just so great because obviously this dude like fucking dies at dawn kind of thing right and who's the prime suspects kind of thing and i just love that but anyways that kill scene though is like phenomenal the yeah. way it's shot it's it looks so like i'd never even i, I i'd never seen anything like that before because obviously i hadn't seen are you talking about the shadows yeah yeah, it yeah, just, I, I, it looks I mean, so good the way like you got to remember this is 1920 and you got to remember they put a lot of thought into the way they light the, the way they lit that scene and just the way the shadow it's just it's so haunting and perfect it's just amazing how they did it man it really is awesome so mm-hmm. kudos yeah. but you can just see how so many people have just taken that scene right <laughs> you know it's been used over and over again in cinema mm-hmm. in the last hundred years it's crazy so but uh yeah the cabinet of dr caligari um I mean, without giving everything away, I mean, it, the movie only runs about 77 minutes. Uh, it's got really good pacing, to be honest, for, you know, and that's another problem I've always had with a lot of silent films, too, is that, you know, a lot of them are on the shorter end, but they will drag at times. You know, they try to fill in, you know, they, you know, they try to pad the time a little bit, even I'm back in those sure days. I'm pretty sure my version was even shorter. I think it was like an hour and six minutes or something. Oh, really? Yeah, this one's 77 minutes, but. Uh, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I feel like this one doesn't pad it at all, man. It just, it kind of keeps you intrigued the whole time. There's, because there is quite a few characters in this, you know, that make up the narrative. So, um, mm-hmm. but uh, ratings. All right. Yeah. So uh, I, I love that dude. Like I normally give people shit for, you know, rating old, old films, you know, based on just the fact that they're old and giving them high ratings and stuff. I don't think that's the case with this one. I mean, coupling in the fact that it is so old and is so ahead of its time and it's also extremely good and still holds up today and and it's not dated you know what i mean it doesn't feel dated it feels ahead of its time it's it's honestly it's uh, uh, it's amazing uh, i'm just gonna come out and give it a full 10 man I, I i see no reason not to i agree man i couldn't go any less than a 10 out of 10 on this i mean the fact that you know caligari kind of looks like scrooge i love that um <laughs> and there's this like ridiculously creepy scene in this movie i, I gotta mention it ben when caligari's actually he's spoon feeding the the sleepwalker that mm-hmm. scene is so fucking creepy to me, man. <laughs> the way it's shot and stuff, you're just like, oh my god. I couldn't even imagine. Like, could you imagine watching this shit in 1920? It must have fucking freaked people out, man. Like, it must have legitimately Bro, made I, people I, shit themselves. <laughs> it probably is the reason World War One happened. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this one was it. it was yeah, it was made just after the war, but no, oh, this okay. is the reason why World War Two happened. They're like, oh, fucking World Germans II, are making yeah. such good films. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, that's uh The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Cool yeah. title, cool film. 
check it out if you never have. Go pick up that Kino, man. You won't regret it. All right, so moving along into the second bonus review uh, from 1979, simply titled Rapture. Um, this, do you know who this one's coming from? Uh, yeah, I want to say that it it it's probably Mark. That seems like something that he would do. But let me let me double check and see if I can find it here. Um, I don't see it. I think Jeremy removed it. Maybe. Yeah, he did remove it. I want to say that it was like. It was like probably Mark Lethem. Okay. Oh yeah, no, it was him. It's still here. Yeah. Um. He actually, we have two other titles to get to from him eventually. Uh. This one, we've had this one on the page for months. So happy to finally get this one done for him. But he always sends us some some art housey weird shit. Yeah. Like I was I was all ready to go. Like I had this one downloaded, all ready to go, and fuck got her all set up last night. Fucking hooked up my laptop to my fucking HDMI. watching this shit upstairs. Press play, and I was like, motherfucker. Didn't you have forgot the, sub- the subtitles. So I had to like just quickly fucking, you know, Google the subtitles, put them in. That's the thing about this VLC programs. It's so easy to, to deal with. But I was like, oh, oh there yeah, go. there we go, man. Fucking subtitle. Bam. Good to go. So, yeah, this is a uh, Spanish film from 1979. It's considered to be like a like a classic to them in the, the modern kind of new age of indie filmmaker type films and shit that were coming out of uh, Spain at the time and shit. So, mm. but uh uh, synopsis a low budget horror filmmaker gets in touch with a, an eccentric who is trying to film his consciousness during drug abuse um yeah this is this is a really really I can see this movie really benefiting from multiple watches because there yeah. is a lot to digest here there's a lot of rampant um, editing there's a lot of shit that's going on I think that it's probably a little there's bit a lot t- of wordy f- dialogue that um the, you're there, like there is wait who's saying this so <laughs> based, this come, coming from that's the thing that's the thing so the, and i can see why a lot of people would be confused by this movie because the narrative actually isn't very linear so what happens here is um our main character this um uh film director his name is uh, uh jose in the film i think yeah it's jose uh, he essentially, you know, he's dating this girl, this girl, Anna and stuff. And, um, he gets a uh, package in the mail one day from, uh, this Pedro guy and it's from his ex-girlfriend. It's his ex-girlfriend's cousin. Which yeah. He- see the whole girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, the girl he's with now, like, I, if I didn't read the Wikipedia page, like I had no clue about that. But I mean, that's a strange start to the narrative anyways. It's like, why are you getting this package from your ex-girlfriend's cousin? But then we do learn that, okay, so this ex, his ex-girlfriend's uh, cousin is, uh, he, he's the eccentric guy that we were talking about and stuff. He's an, an aspiring filmmaker and shit. And he does, he notes in, in the note that he's actually met Jose a couple times and see what happens is, you know, and he sends him this film to watch and he's got like an audio tape. It's like a commentary to go along with this tape and stuff. So he kind of pops it in, but then what happens is it, it flashes back to the first time that they had met. And so he was there with his ex-girlfriend now because we get introduced to, you know, Jose's girlfriend in the beginning. And all of a sudden it flashes back and it's Jose with his ex-girlfriend and and why he had met Pedro's her cousin. (laughs) Yeah. And Pedro's her cousin. So the reason why he ended up meeting Pedro is because he was there um, 
you know, at his, basically they were going to visit his house, his auntie's house or whatever for scouting for a movie that he was doing and stuff. And that's how we kind of met up with him the first time and stuff. And then it, and then it cuts back into the present day where they're kind of, um, you know, still listening and watching the video and stuff like that. And it's going through all this craziness and shit. And then it reflashes back to the second time that they had met. And then there's a bunch of stuff with, um, now he's dating Anna, <laughs> which is fucking strange. So he's with his present girlfriend now. And, you know, Pedro basically kind of gives her this Betty Boop doll and shit and a whole pile of stuff is happening. Like they're filming each other. I didn't get that. Like she, she, he gave him a bit. She gave her a bit Betty Boop doll. Was that indicating that she was like really high and just like tripping out, staring at the doll for hours? Yeah. Well, that's kind of what they're, that's kind of what they're trying to induce here. Um, I think it was, it, it turns out it was kind of by chance that she was all into Be- Betty Boop at the time. And I think she was tripping out the fact that he gave her a doll that she used to love without him without her you know without him actually knowing about that and stuff but the drugs was is part of the whole thing here too anyway so it flashes back to that and then it kind of cuts back to the present where you know he's with that and the the relationship's totally deteriorating and you know that's kind of making up a lot of the narrative too but meanwhile that all this is happening you know he's still watching this very abstract type film and it's like Pedro's movies are basically just a bunch of shit that he's filmed kind of spliced together. It's very fast paced, rampant editing, not really making a lot of sense. It's very eccentric and just kind of all over the place kind of deal. Right. And um, yeah, so this one, you know, it's kind of playing on the fact that like, you know, see what happens is with Pedro is that he was making these films and he started filming himself. Mm -hmm. And the reason why he sent this film to, to Jose is because he wanted to, he wanted him to figure out and maybe tell him why these kind of red scenes were happening. What was happening was he um, was making these movies and stuff. And what had happened was he was sleeping one day and his camera actually like turned on by itself and started filming him. And then, you know, there was a spot in the film that actually went red. So basically didn't film this certain part. And what Pedro realized when he woke up in the morning is that um, he started to feel like really kind of, you know, refreshed and, you know, it, it felt like that was the rapture that was the rapture of what was happening. So he kept like filming himself while he was sleeping and these kind of things would happen. Like there would be all these, you know, these frames that were missing in the film when he'd wake up and stuff, but he'd feel better. But then he realized when he doesn't get filmed at nighttime, he wakes up and he's all fucked up and shit like that. And you have to like, you know, he's like withdrawn from all his drugs. Exactly. Because and that now, and then you start wondering what the fuck is, why is this happening? Like, why is, you know, why do I feel refreshed when there's these red frames? Like what's happening in that red frame? So it was a combination of what's happening when he's being filmed, when he's sleeping and, you know, com- combined with the drug trip and shit like that. And so he wants Jose to kind of watch this and figure it out and stuff. And it's just a really, really strange narrative. But like when you really kind of, you know, dig into the core of it, it's kind of interesting because what the fuck is happening? Because the experimental <laughs> film for Pedro was, you know, to make, you know, to time lapse his films. That's how he actually got Jose there the first time was, you know, to to teach him on how to time lapse his films because he wanted to make these really kind of fast paced, rapid films and shit. Mm-hmm. And so he teaches them that. But then, you know, this shit happens with the red frames and he's not being filmed properly and then he's feeling energized and, you know, not energized. And, uh, you know, I kind of I kind of dug into it a little bit and people are saying that it's kind of like this huge underlying, maybe like metaphorical thing for like vampirism and stuff. And I'm like, wow, I'm like, where the fuck did people get that from? But really, I didn't I didn't didn't come up with that at all. No, I was not Um, leaning that way. But the only thing I was thinking about is because he was sleeping and there's something happening in that time where it's not filming. It's like it's like 
it's almost like he's having this outer body experience where it's disrupting the film and it's not filming him. But at the same time, he's also feeling, feeling refreshed that it's fucking strange. The the only thing that I was thinking was that it is a, um, like they're just so fucked up that they don't, they don't know what they're doing. And they just think that this is happening, you know, because they're all, they're getting like worse cracked out on drugs and stuff. But I mean, that's the simple explanation, but yeah, I didn't really know what was going on. Honestly, like this movie was real confusing to me. If I didn't read the Wikipedia page and like, look at a couple of reviews, it, yeah. it pieced together the pieces that were missing in my head while watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helped a ton. If I just took this film by itself, I would have been like, what the fuck was that? But, um, and there's also like this gay subtext. Did you get that? Yeah, there's this really odd scene where, you know, they're kind of, um, yeah, actually at the time, I think Anna was, you know, tripping out on her fucking Betty Boop doll and all of a sudden it kind of cuts to them getting out of bed with. Yeah, like there's a straight dong shot there. And I was like, wow, did they I'm like, did he just fuck this dude in front of his girlfriend? (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck happened there? Yeah, it's kind of strange. I mean, what I was gathering from like the rapture was like. It's kind of like, you know, it's the place you go to, like, get away from everything. And, you know, it's kind of like, it's almost like a nostalgic thing, too. But it's induced by, you know, being filmed. It's it's actually, it's a combination. It's like a recipe of being filmed mixed with drugs and alcohol. So that recipe is what creates the rapture, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what was happening when you go into that place, when you kind of zone out like Anna was, and maybe you're zoning out to the point where you're having gay homosexual sex. I don't know. Like it's just fucking Is that like a double negative gay homosexual sex? So is it I like don't know actually why like- I had to describe it like that. Now I'm gonna get fucking people yelling at me like you know, so but yeah, there's like there's this recipe that's there. You know, like I said, you know, it's the uh it's the cinema, it's the act of filming mixed with the drugs and stuff that take you to this place and it's supposed to get you away from things. But the the interesting part of the film is what's happening. Why is, you know, Pedro you know, reacting and why are these red frames coming up and stuff? And I, I couldn't honestly come to an answer. I really racked my brain about it like all day today. I had to go out and do a couple of deliveries for a uh, product for salon and stuff. We've kind of set up a program where we're actually doing house deliveries, you know, social distancing, non-touch, blah, 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 shit. I digress. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about it while I was driving around today and I was like, fuck, dude, I cannot think of what else it could be because the end of the movie is really trippy too because, mm-hmm. you know, he ends up... Well, in the beginning of the film, when when Pedro sends him this this package with the the video or with the film and the and the tape and stuff, he also sent him a key, and it's actually the key to his apartment. And by the end of the film, he actually gets him to you know, hey man, you know, like come check out this this film I just did. Uh, you've got my house key. Can you come check this out? And then something like fucking totally bizarre happens on this film and shit like that. And I'm like trying to think of it, and I'm like. I don't know, man. It's just like some artsy, weird drug and do shit. <laughs> I don't know, like how that really played into the, the the narrative. Like I couldn't make anything of it, so I really yeah. don't. I really don't understand what the hell. Because you know, at this point, I mean, the film is like red and stuff. I don't want to give everything away, but uh, it's just it's kind of yeah. hard to talk to talk about without not really giving it away. But yeah, yeah, it's it's a weird one. I, I didn't love it personally. I I thought it was interesting. I was interested the whole time i i feel like man some of these films just like i don't know if it's because we watch so many movies or we are required to watch so many movies but some films just feel d- too damn long like i get the point of this movie i feel like it could have been delivered in in 90 minutes um it's actually one of my criticisms with this film too i think this movie would have completely benefited from being about a half an hour shorter this one does run pretty much exactly two hours long and when you're watching a very abstract 
you know, kind of artsy, you know, almost confusing type film of this nature because it's not linear. There's a lot of, it goes back from, mm-hmm. you know, the present to, to the past and stuff like that. And, uh, but it's also subtitled. So you're reading it and you're trying to watch it too. But when you're watching a fast, fastly paced edited film, when you're reading subtitles, you are missing things, even as good as we mm-hmm. are as watching these type of films. This type of film is on a different level because it's so, it's just rampant. It's yeah. fucking, it's got like rabies, dude. It's just like, <laughs> like what the fuck's going on here? So I did, I found myself actually getting up to fucking rewind a little bit. I'm like, what the fuck? I wanted to see that. And I, then I would mm-hmm. focus on the visual a little bit. And so it took me a little longer than two hours. So it was kind of a marathon to watch this one. But by the end of it, I wasn't confused. I was just more confused on the actual ending of the movie. I'm like, what it means and stuff. Yeah. Cause I, it was like racking my brain. I'm like, did he just like fully go rapture and like became one with the cinema? I don't really understand. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. Um, maybe you're not supposed to know. Maybe it's one of those type of deals because from what I've read on the director, like he was really talented and he was really kind of, he does, he did a lot of this type of shit and people seem to like it and stuff. So I don't know, but I also read that he actually died of like heroin use. You know, he was a heroin addict, you know, like his whole life kind of thing and stuff. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So it's kind of like not autobiographical, but it was probably based on him a little bit. Right. Horror film director. That's yeah, doing dude, heroin. Heroin is, heroin is nasty, 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 man. Yeah. Like there's a scene in this film where they, you know, beginning of the film, he's kind of all stressed out about his actual job. <laughs> Blow overflows his bathtub. Yeah. Like <laughs> me up, yo. <laughs> yeah, man. And like, but he's like totally freaking out. Cause he's, you know, he's a director and he's shit's not going good with his job and stuff. And he comes home and he fucking starts doing heroin. But like, you know, it's that close up shot, you know, of the needle going in the vein and really pumping it in there. I was like, Oh fuck. You know, yeah. it's just Jesus Christ, man. It's up and personal man at that point. So, but I will say though, you know, for this type of movie, for being super independent, you know, the actor's not having a lot of experience and stuff. And actually, the girl that played Anna, I thought she was fucking hot, man. She just had this kind of like unique look to her. There's something about her, man. She was just attractive. And we got to see her boobs and her huge muff in it too. So that was kind of cool. But, and, and some dong, if you like the dong. <laughs> guess, mm-hmm. but, so it has that, but it was an intriguing film to me. I, I was definitely enjoying it, but I was having a little bit of issues with the, the running time. I think it is definitely way too long for what it is, but you know, I would like to see this movie in, you know, like a, a beautiful kind of HD transfer stuff. The transfer I watched wasn't bad. You know, it's full screen, but it was pretty good. You know, it wasn't like a, a, a beat up old fucking beta tape, you know, kind of deal. But I, I think. Oh, this, yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was all right. Yeah, I thought I thought honestly this. Oh, well, I guess we probably watched the same one. But yeah, this one yeah. Um, could honestly benefit from just a nice transfer and, and, and a couple watches and stuff, too. But. Like I said before, you know, it's artsy. I don't know if the meaning is supposed to be fully there. Um, if you guys have any opinions on it, leave your comments somewhere. Um, I'd like to actually hear, um, you know, people's thoughts on the film. Uh, just, you know, explanation to the end and stuff. And who knows? I, I'm sure people have different uh, opinions and thoughts on it. So, but uh, yeah. Um, ratings. Uh, you know, I actually really did enjoy this movie. I think one of my biggest complaints was the fact that there was some scenes in this film film that I felt completely could have been cut out. Like there's a, there's a couple scenes. I think the relationship between, um, you know, Jose and Anna at times was getting a little bit tedious because it doesn't really play in too much to, you know, the, the, the 
the core of the narrative, you know, it doesn't really do a whole lot. I think some of that stuff probably could have been cut out actually quite a bit of it. Uh, it just really didn't make a lot of sense to me because there's one point in the film where he's like literally screaming at her saying, our relationship has been done for so long, you know, get the fuck out, but you don't have to go. You can stay like, he's just like going back. It's just weird shit, man. That didn't really need to be there in my opinion. But, um, but, you know, with all that said, I thought editing was really good. I thought it was a well put together film. The music was kind of interesting and odd. And the dude that plays Pedro, I thought did a great job. He's kind of a weird looking dude. Like the scene where he's eating this whole thing of grapes, it was actually kind of fucking making me laugh because it was oh, like, yeah, pouring where he gets, out. gets the um, <laughs> liquor and the grapes. He's like, he's like, <laughs> like you guys want some back br- with a whole bushel of grapes, dude? It was like a whole branch of grapes. It was fucking crazy. <laughs> and like, and this whole scene, like he's this, you know, he's talking to me, he's drinking and eating these grapes, and all of a sudden he just ate the whole branch. You know, ate the whole fucking thing, it's, and it's like coming out of his mouth. And I'm like, what the fuck? But he was, he was kind of killing me, man, because he was. Uh, I thought he was doing a pretty good job in the role. Um, as being this very eccentric dude, like there's a bunch of scenes where they show him at, uh, at the film, um, store or whatever, getting his shit developed and stuff. And he's just, you can tell he's like totally fucking cracked out and shit, but those are the nights where, you know, he wasn't filmed and shit. And right. So he didn't have that like rap. It's very fucking strange, but, um, but anyways, I digress. I'm blabbling on. I'm going to still come in about an eight out of 10 on this. I actually really enjoyed this movie. Um, just there's things that are kind of up in the air for myself. So. Yeah, I'm a little bit lower on it. I gave it a 7 out of 10. Um, I still thought it was good. I just I wasn't like super impressed by it or anything. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Have you checked the children? Children. What do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. Alright, first up for me in this special what we watched edition of 22 Shots. We have the first in a trio of films from the 1960s I will be reviewing. All three of them came from the same Patreon supporter, and that is Tyler. Uh, Thank you very much for the picks. I think that he probably gave me these since I don't cover a ton of 1960s films. And the first one that I'm going to be talking about is 1967's Wait Until Dark, directed by Terrence Young, who is probably most famous for his three films in the James Bond film series. Uh, It stars Audrey Hepburn, who was actually nominated for an Academy Award uh, during the year that this film came out for this film. And uh, it was, I believe, the uh, Best Actress award that she was nominated for which she actually lost to Catherine Hepburn uh for guess who's coming to dinner which I don't I don't think they're related but don't quote me on that uh anyway wait until dark it follows a recently blinded woman who is terrorized by a trio of thugs while they search for a heroin stuffed doll they believe is in her apartment so this film is a film that I had never seen it is more of a thriller suspense mystery in the lines of alfred hitchcock but also in the lines of alfred hitchcock we have a you know 
horror undertones to this film and and honestly the final act the climax of this film uh very much fits in the category of a horror film it, it actually gets quite intense and scary uh done very very well too so uh this film uh actually kind of blew me away a little bit so it's more complicated than the brief imdb description made it sound it's a film that heavily relies on mystery and you being on the edge of your seat and just waiting to see what happens next and that's how i felt the entire time i was watching this film i was just like okay this plot is kind of ridiculous uh the way that these thugs as they're described are concocting this master plan to get the woman uh to reveal where the doll is is kind of you know a, a little complex and maybe not so much grounded in reality but you kind of just roll with it and just want to see where it goes and the audience it honestly the the themes of this film with the blindness is really awesome because it plays a lot of ways uh so the character the lead is blind uh but the audience is not so we see all of these characters who are pretending to be people they're not such as you know policemen and estranged old men uh, and we see that they're just the trio of thugs that we know of as bad people and they're playing these other characters and the woman doesn't know that he's not a policeman and you know the woman doesn't know that she's not talking to her husband's friend and it's really this criminal uh, so the audience isn't blinded but the character is blinded and that makes for an interesting uh, suspenseful ride uh, because you constantly see the things that that she's not privy to uh, and this character is very likable and smart too um, the character of uh, Susie she's she's very good in this film uh, and that is another thing that stands out in this film the acting it's fantastic um, when you go and watch a couple of films you know lower budget films from the 2000s or the 90s or something and then you go into a film like wait until dark you're like oh there's acting and then there's acting and you know you you forget the levels of acting because this film has some incredible levels that are way ahead of the stuff that i've been watching and you kind of forget about that for a little bit uh i i truly kind of fell in love with this film it really is it reminds me of a hitchcock type movie um very good thriller um with uh, a little dose of horror attached to it and um there's some other good performances in this film everybody it's a, it's a small small cast but everybody that's in it does a fantastic job um man I, I'll, I'll tell you that this the, the acting in this thing is is great um the uh one the one villain i forget which character he is but he is amazing in this film the one with the glasses and the uh the um black hair he, he's fantastic in this film um there's a good uh the climax is handles the blindness thing again um, but this time it switches it up and makes the viewer blind for a second. And that I thought that was brilliant. Uh, such a awesome, awesome, awesome movie. Uh, absolutely loved it. 
Uh, definitely, if we ever do a 1967 show, I can't imagine that this wouldn't be very high or even number one on my list. I can't think of anything else that came out in 1967 off the top of my head. But man, this is such a good movie. Uh, so Wait Until Dark, I'm coming in at a very high 9 out of 10. Such an amazing film. All right, so that was a very informative and terrible review, JP. <laughs> nah, I'm just joking, man. I'm just joking. All right, so first up here from a dub, dub, dub uh, on this all Patreon version of the What We Watched extravaganza uh, is a film from 1987 titled Chillers. This is coming from a man, Tony Hartman. Uh, this is an anthology film that was actually released by Troma on DVD back in the day part of a triple pack and it also has an individual release also uh this is a movie that i could actually see vinegar syndrome releasing in the future on blu-ray and hope it you know i actually really do hope it does get a blu-ray release because it's you know it's a pretty decent anthology film that doesn't really get mentioned a whole lot uh basically uh this one um has some bookends and it has five stories so essentially kind of six stories uh it starts out with a group of people kind of meeting in this bus station they're awaiting their bus um, you know, so they can go on their journeys. And um, ultimately, they decide to tell each other about their nightmares. And uh, so the first story involves, um, it's basically involving a swimming pool and a girl. And, uh, you know, she's taking lessons and doing her thing inside the swimming pool. And, uh, of course, there's a big twist with one of the characters by the name of Billy Waters. Of course, his name is Billy Waters and stuff. Uh, this one right here is um, probably like the most predictable of all the stories. Uh, you pretty much know where it's kind of going right from the start. Um, it's still kind of cool to watch, um, but, you know, decent at best. Uh, the second story is basically about this little boy who is kind of like a Cub Scout or a scout. He's out there with a couple of his other scouts and his leader out in the bush camping. And, you know, they start getting picked off one by one by this maniac. Of course, there is a twist. And uh, this one actually is pretty cool, man. Um, I remember when I first seen this anthology years and years ago, I actually didn't see the twist coming for some odd reason. It's probably because I was just younger and naive. But um, I always enjoyed this one. It's got some pretty tense moments and things like that. But as shorts, you know, they don't flush them out a lot. So it kind of gets to the meat and potatoes of it. But um, still actually a really good one. I really enjoy that one. Uh, the third story is about this woman that's obsessed with this news anchor. And oddly enough, she decides one day to actually give the news anchor a call at work to ask him out on a date. Like who does that? Who watches the news obsesses over a news anchor and decides that they're actually going to, um, you know, give him a call and ask him out on a date, uh, to her amazement, the dude accepts, he shows up at her apartment and stuff. And then something of course happens. And, uh, this was actually probably one of my favorite ones, if not my favorite one again, uh, there's obviously a twist because that's kind of what happens in anthology films and shorts. They have to be, you know, they ha there has to be a twist. Uh, this one is actually really cool. I really enjoy this one a lot, actually. Uh, the fourth one is basically about this dude that has these powers uh, to bring people back from the dead. Um, he has this ability to look at the newspaper, specifically in the memoriam parts, and ultimately bring these people back to life and of course there's a twist in this one too and i think this one right here is one of those type of shorts that you could essentially flush out into a full length feature you know you could really spread out the narrative quite a lot and um do something very very drastic with the with the narrative and stuff so um 
it definitely one of my favorite ones uh, in the anthology. I think it's very original, actually, also. Uh, with the story five is basically about this professor of anthology. He's kind of a skeptic. He's talking about this, you know, this Mexican demon and things like that. And then, of course, this girl ends up getting possessed by this Mexican kind of demon and stuff. And uh, it, it's a decent one. You know, um, it's got some pretty de- decent atmosphere to it and things like that. It's definitely kind of falls in the middle of the uh, the range for myself. And then of course there is the wraparound story, which kind of, you know, bookends this whole thing together. And I think it's actually really well done, to be honest. I think that's kind of what, you know, you might be expecting from it. You might not be expecting, but I think it actually, it kind of pulls the whole anthology together quite nicely, actually. Uh, like my overall thoughts on the whole thing, you know, it is definitely low budget, you know, it runs, an acceptable time. It doesn't overstay its welcome with the sh- with the shorts, and they really are short. I mean, it's roughly ninety minutes. You essentially have six stories, five main features plus the bookends. Uh, it definitely does what it's supposed to do. I don't think any of the stories are exceptionally bad. I don't think any of them are exceptionally great. It's just a solid anthology film. It's definitely a decent way of you know passing ninety minutes, you know, and stuff. So, and like I said before, you know, this is definitely one that needs a little bit more love. And uh, hopefully, Vinegar Syndrome, since you know they do release a lot of uh, you know the trauma titles onto Blu-ray, that they eventually put this one out because I think you know it might get a little bit more love and it deserves it. You know, so if I had to rate this one, I am probably going to come in about a seven out of ten. It's definitely solid, worth the watch. Um, so, but yeah, that's Chillers from 1987. All right, so my next film is another film from Tyler here. It's also the second in the trio of 1960s films, and that is 1960s Peeping Tom. Now, I know that Tyler probably gave me this because I had mentioned that I had never seen it when we were talking about the fact that Peeping Tom is listed as the first slasher in the film Scream 4, and I debated on whether I think that's true because I consider Halloween the first slasher the first true slasher and I said peeping Tom is more of a proto meanwhile I'd never actually seen peeping Tom but I have seen a lot about peeping Tom I've seen reviews of it I've seen it in you know Bravo's hundred scariest movie moments and stuff like that so I am familiar with peeping Tom I've just never actually seen the movie in full so is it the first slasher well I will give you guys an answer to that towards the end of my review but first let's set up the plot here a young man named Mark murders women using a movie camera to film their dying expressions of terror. So the film opens up with a POV murder of a young prostitute. Right away, I could totally see the slasher influence. Reminds me of films that came much later, like Halloween and Friday the 13th, especially Friday the 13th, that opening murder of the two young camp counselors. It really reminds me of that. Uh, In this particular scene, we're seeing the POV through the camera lens that Mark is carrying. It's not the fourth wall, uh, you know, audience POV of of just the, you know, the, the actual film cameras that are used to shoot the movie. It's actually a device in the film, which is kind of interesting. You know, it almost has that like found footage POV element to it, which is kind of cool. So... Uh, after that, we follow Mark meeting and, you know, killing other people, not a ton of kills in this film. I think only like two or three, uh, maybe four. I can't really remember. Uh, but we see him sort of create this or, you know, 
start this romantic relationship with this woman who lives in his apartment complex. She has a blind mother. So again, with the blind theme of the 1960s, seemed like a popular theme in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and even the 70s in Italian cinema, a lot of Dario Argento films included blind people, Falci as well. Um, so yeah, we have Mark sort of creating this relationship. We also find out that he's a very disturbed and damaged young man because his father used to run experiments on him when he was a child to um, sort of, you know, study fear and its effects on people. He would uh, traumatize Mark essentially um, and film the traumatic experiences like Mark next on his mother's deathbed and putting a lizard on Mark's bed when he was a child and things like this. Uh, it definitely disturbs, um, the love interest of Mark and she, you know, is taken back a little bit by it. Um, he's also making a documentary on, uh, you know, the expressions of terror and, and the death of his victims and in the face of the victims that he's, you know, killing and things like that. Um, it's, uh, you know, a very decent movie. Um, it definitely feels like it's from the 1960s. Uh, like, even the way the police say, like, the you know, when they're examining the bodies, that each of the bodies had a, a look of terror in their face. You know, that just sounds like something out of the 1960s. Uh, and, you know, that, that's kind of funny. Um, the tripod leg used as the weapon is kind of cool. Um uh, it's it's a psychological horror film, uh, very very reminiscent of Psycho, which came out in the same year. Peeping Tom predates Psycho um, by a couple of months in the UK. I think it came out in April, and Psycho came out in September in the US. But uh, Psycho in the US came out first. Uh, Peeping Tom came out in 1961 in the US, so a, a year later, which uh, is interesting. That's probably why Psycho was besides the fact that it's the better movie was more, you know, beloved and, and influenced more, I guess. Um, but I think that this is a very solid movie. It definitely deserves its reputation as being a influence to slasher films. Uh, I do not think that it is the first slasher film. Uh, and I do not think psycho is the first slasher film personally. As I said, I think that Halloween is the first true slasher film, meaning it, it, it finally perfected all the elements of slashers. Uh, both of these films, Peeping Tom and Psycho, have slasher elements to them. That's why I do consider them proto-slashers, prototypes to what slashers became. But I really think Halloween is the first slasher film. Um, there is an argument to be made for Black Christmas that I am open to and I can see. Uh, I'm not opposed to calling Black Christmas the first slasher film, but to me... Halloween really truly encapsulated everything that a slasher film uh, would go on to do. Um, you have, you know, these slasher films of the 80s that all uh, sort of mimicked Halloween. And you might say that Halloween mimicked Black Christmas, but it sort of added its own elements to uh, the whole slasher scene, too. Um, I think the one breaking point for peeping tom really considering it a slasher or, or the first slasher is it doesn't it, though it has the pov elements and the voyeurism aspect to it um i think that the fact that we spend so much time with mark that sort of um 
takes it out of the slasher realm to me. And and I know what you're thinking. Well, what about a film like Maniac, uh, which is a psychological um, slasher film where we follow um, Frank Zito the entire time. And I'm with you and I hear you. And that's why I don't think that, you know, if Maniac was the first, if Maniac came out a year before Halloween, I, I wouldn't consider it the first slasher, although I do consider it a slasher now. And that's just because um, it sort of borrowed, it uses elements of it, but it's more of a, it's more of a psychological slasher um, that sort of, you know, it breaks the formula a little bit, but it breaks the formula after the formula had existed, not before the formula existed. You know what I mean? So um, it's a little hard to really explain why I feel that way, but I just feel like that if me, if this film had, you know, more kills, um, you know, and more elements of it being, you know, a killer, um, picking off people one by one, the stock and slash, I could see it argued a little bit more, but I think that really what this film has is the POV voyeurism aspect in two kills. And I think that's why it's lumped into the slasher category. I would consider that prototype. Um, it has elements, but it didn't fully encapsulate what slashers became. And of course, after Halloween, slashers, you know, drop some elements and and focus on more uh, other elements like body counts, um, and you know, cool killers or setting it on a you know a thing and having teenagers and stuff like that. Um, that sort of, you know, is is the deeper foundation of the slasher film, but. Um, peeping Tom, you know, I, I could totally see where the elements are. I just don't, I don't think that it's a slasher film. It's a psychological, um, horror film, sort of like psycho, very, very similar to psycho. It's like a character study type thing. Um, it does have sort of the tragic backstory that you expect in a lot of slasher films. See, a lot of these things are not rules, but have, you know, they, they, they're each elements to what you know, can become a slasher film, but they're not real. Like you don't have to, like you can have a slasher film without having certain specific things. But I think when you're talking about the first slasher film, it has to have more than just a couple to fully realize that slasher film that we all know and love. And that's why I think Halloween is that film, but I have no problem calling peeping Tom a proto slasher at all um <laughs> didn't expect to get fully into my thoughts on slasher films but i hope you guys enjoy that um overall i think peeping tom's a pretty decent movie uh i don't think that it's the best movie ever but i give it a solid eight out of ten so that is peeping tom 1960 all righty yeah jp you want to roll with those shit reviews <laughs> i'm just joking Alrighty, so moving along here, next up for myself is a film from 2014 titled Teenage Slumber Party Nightmare. That is right. Uh, this is coming from the homeboy Lord Frieza, Patreon pick. And uh, this one right here was actually directed by uh, the same guy, yeah, Richard Moog. Richard Moog, this is the same guy that did uh, such classics as Easter Bunny Bloodbath, Bangin' Vengeance, Massage Parlor of Death. Uh, he also contributed to the trash exploitation kind of um, trailer segments, uh, shorts, a whole pile of fictitious things that are going on there. Um, 
Earth Girls Are Sleazy. So you kind of get the picture of where this uh, review is or where this movie is kind of going. So with a title like Teenage Slumber Party Nightmare, the first thing you think of really is uh, Slumber Party Massacre. And essentially, that's exactly what you get with this movie. Um, It's about a dude that's hunting down girls that are having a slumber party with a rusty drill. Um that's the that's the synopsis of the film. <laughs> the major problem with this movie is pretty much everything. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible film. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely love low budget kind of shot on video or nowadays I guess shot digitally. I guess that's kind of like the what this is. It would be shot on video if it was made 25 years ago, but it's shot digitally. Um the problem is with this movie is that there's really just no script. There's no there's no real narrative. There's no push in this movie whatsoever. I, I just feel like there's so many scenes in this film where they just let the camera roll like long, stagnant shots, stoic shots of just the girls talking and just talking about whatever. It's very uninteresting dialogue. The acting's really, really horrible. Like there's a scene where the three girls are sitting in this park and they're just talking about their daily stuff. And it, and it, it literally looks like they're just making it up as they go along. And then all of a sudden, by the end of it, they start screaming out penis so other people can hear them and shit. But what you get in this movie is 74 minutes of pure filler. Um, there is a kill that happens 10, 15 minutes in the movie, which is probably one of the most awkward kills I've ever seen in a movie ever. It's this unbelievably hilarious. Um, but then uh, you get, you know, the next basically 55, 60 minutes of the movie is just straight filler. It's just a bunch of dialogue, just a bunch of ridiculous scenes of the girls cooking hot dogs and making wiener penis jokes for 15 minutes and drinking Pap's Blue Ribbon beer and getting shit faced off of two beers and stuff. But yeah, it's just a lot of really, really painful acting and dialogue and really bad music. It's just, it's beyond low budget. I actually looked into it and even said that the budget on this film was a hundred dollars and it fucking made me laugh out loud. I was like, that is too, too funny. Uh, this movie was actually filmed in Vancouver. So where I used to live, but you know, I can't be biased on this one because this was just, it was, it was a tragedy to watch. I was like, when is something going to happen? Like fucking seriously, you know, after all this pointless dialogue and shit, then the girl, of course the girls kind of strip down and have like a pillow flight fight and shit. And, and then a dude shows up who brought him pizza. And then finally some kills happen with about nine minutes to go in the movie. And the kills are, they're really, really bad. I mean, the effects are terrible. It's just straight, you know, refrigerator condiments and things like that. So even the kill portion of it was pretty, disappointing to say the least and actually even who survives the movie was uber disappointing too because the girl that survives the film is the most annoying most annoying nasal talking female i've ever seen ever in a film it's just it's it's really really atrocious uh i can't say anything good about the movie unfortunately because there's not really a whole lot to report like i said you know uninteresting dialogue just very stoic kind of painful shots mixed in with some really tragic music and shit um very talky i mean i get it you know you have no budget and stuff like that but at least try to have interesting dialogue if you're going to make a movie like this with 90 percent filler 95 percent filler at least try to have some decent dialogue they just couldn't come up with this you can tell the girls were on the spot kind of ad-libbing everything they were doing and stuff Um, maybe they probably had premises and you know kind of certain things to go off of but that's pretty much it um yeah it is just very very painful for a 74 minute film just awful really really awful um and then the very last shot in the film just kind of 
sets me off even worse. It's it's one of those things where you're like, really, like that's where you're gonna go with this shit. Uh, horrible film, terrible shit. It was released by uh, Subrosa Cinema, which you know, I mean, if you've seen some of the other films like Mas- Massage Parlor, Mur- whatever the fuck, that shit was terrible too. Easter Bunny Bloodbath, another terrible one, but. Um, this one I can't recommend whatsoever. I got to come in about a 0.5 out of 10. There's nothing redeemable about this movie whatsoever. Uh, I don't know if this was picked as a joke for me or possibly the fact that I do like these low budget kind of shot on video slash, um, you know, digital type films and stuff. But uh, this one I can't get behind, man. It's just, you know, if you're going to have a movie, you know, like I said before, have some good dialogue, have some decent dialogue and some kills. That's all we ask for. But, uh, and on top of that, you know, a a movie about slumber party and, you know, just girls and shit, there's no fucking nudity. That was disappointing too. So come on, people get with it. Um, but that's it, man. Teenage slumber party massacre or teenage slumber party nightmare from 2014.5 out of 10. Do not check it out. It is horrible. All right. So next up is the third and final film in the trilogy of films from 1960. This one was also given me by Tyler. Um, It is The Innocence from the year 1961, which is a film that is based on a book called The Turn of the Screw, which was by American novelist Henry James. And that particular story came out in 1898, which is such a long time ago. Uh, you guys might be familiar with um, The Turn of the Screw and its many adaptations. Uh, we have one adaptation from this past um, year, 2020, called The Turning, which was actually one of the worst horror films I've seen this year. And I've seen quite a bad, uh, quite a few bad ones um, already this year. But yeah, there, there's there have been a ton of um, adaptations of this particular work. Um throughout history throughout you know plays and and tv and also uh different movies um there's actually uh quite a few um films that that take uh this story such as presence of mind 1999 and a dark place 2006 um to name a few uh television uh there was a star trek voyager episode uh, as well as the anthology series, The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, the film was directed by Jack Clayton, who um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not too familiar with. Um, he it, uh, you know, did, did a few films as a director. Um, the Innocence, uh, Something This Wicked This Way Comes is another one that... Um, I've I've heard of I haven't seen though uh, so this film The Innocence follows a woman who is um, interviewing for a job and this job is to be a governess um, which I don't even know what that means I guess it's like a housekeeper essentially like a living nanny um, type of person at a um, giant like mansion-esque house uh, she is basically going to um, not basically take care of these two kids and not bother 
um, the um, guardian of these kids. Uh, there's also a couple of housekeepers and things that, that also live on property at this mansion. Uh, as she's there, she's taking care of two kids, um, one of which is a young girl and the other is a young boy. Um, and the young boy is off at school. The young girl is there. She takes a liking to the young girl. Uh, the young boy actually gets sent home from school because he, his name's miles. He was misbehaving and he basically, um, has, you know, been a bad influence in class. So he, uh, gets sent home. Uh, the little girl actually predicts that this is going to happen, which sets up sort of a little eerie moment right there. And, uh, meanwhile, the governess is actually seeing visions of this man who was once an employee at the property as well, uh, who has a history with the place. Um, let me just say that I, I don't love this movie. Uh, I think that it's, you know, good for its time, you know, 1961, that's super early. Uh, it's a, it's definitely a pioneer in the haunted house genre. And there are some really creepy moments, uh, specifically involving, uh, this ghost across the lake that I just thought was, you know, actually very creepy. Um, but for the most part, uh, the film is a little slow. It drags a little bit. I actually don't like, I think the main thing that I don't like is just the adaptation, the, the story itself, the turning of the screw. I'm just not interested in that story that much. It feels very old. It feels very, um, kind of been there, done that because it's so old. You know what I mean? We've seen so many adaptations and different types of ghost stories since then. This one kind of feels, um, ancient. And, uh, the film feels really old. I, I don't think it's a bad film. Don't get me wrong. It's just not one that I really, uh, find myself gravitating to strongly. Uh, I thought it was decent. I gave it a seven out of 10. Thank you, JP, for that amazing review. Alrighty. So moving along here, uh, this Patreon pick is coming from Tyler from 1977, the Sentinel directed by the one and only Michael Winner. Now, I love Michael Winner films, man. He did like the first three Death Wish movies. He did The Nightcomers with Marlon Brando. Uh, he worked with, um, uh, of course, Charles Bronson a few times in The Mechanic, The Stone Killer, and like I said, in the Death Wish movies. Um, yeah, just it's Scorpio. He did so many movies that I absolutely love. I mean, Michael Winner is definitely one of those directors that I, I never think about as being like one of my favorites, but man, he's done a lot of movies that I personally love. Um, and then 1977 came the Sentinel, straight up horror film, uh, starring lots of crazy people, man. Uh, starring Chris uh, uh, Sarandon, uh, Christina Raines, Martin Balsam, John Carradine, Jose Frere, uh, Arthur Kennedy, Burgess Meredith. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Christopher Walken's in this, Jerry Orbeck, Beverly D'Angelo, which you actually get to see her tits in this movie too. Just an, an incredible cast. I mean, a lot of these people weren't like huge, huge at the time. Some of them were, some of them went on to be really, really big names and stuff. But it's definitely one of those movies that if you've never seen before and you watch it now, you're like, holy shit, I recognize like everybody in this movie. Pretty damn cool stuff. Um, so getting into the synopsis of this one, it basically follows our main character, Allison Parker, played by Christina uh, Reigns. Um, she is having a lot of personal problems. She's actually attempted suicide a couple times, and she's living with her lawyer boyfriend, uh, Michael, played by Chris Sarandon. 
and uh, she decides that she really needs a life change. She needs to get out of there. She still wants to be with with Michael, but she needs to go find her find herself, you know, by moving out and getting her own apartment and stuff. So she moves into this very, very plush downtown New York apartment with these like huge 20 foot ceilings, just crazy, crazy stuff. She gets an awesome deal on it. Originally they want like $500 for it. And then she ends up paying like $400, which is just like ridiculous even for that time for this type of apartment and stuff. So she moves into this place and, um, you know, continues to work. She's a model. She's doing some photo shoots and stuff. Uh, of course, my man Jeff Goldblum's in this movie. No, he's not my man. I can't stand this guy. But he's not in the movie enough to ruin it for me. <laughs> but uh, so she keeps on working and stuff and uh, ultimately starts having some issues, some personal issues. Uh, once she arrives at this apartment, she starts having some um, kind of medical, some health issues and stuff. And she starts hearing crazy sounds and she starts meeting all these weird people. There's just so much happening since she's moved into this place. She's just, what the fuck is going on? So after you know she collapses a couple times and she ends up calling a realtor up to to find out what exactly is going on in this apartment and stuff and the realtor actually reveals something to her which i won't give away because uh, it comes about 30 35 minutes into the film and uh, you're like oh damn so it kind of goes from there and then it just keeps going so uh that's it for the synopsis my thoughts on the sentinel man this movie is just pure classic material it's a masterpiece in my opinion i think it's just it's awesome i'm glad that they actually reveal what they reveal about 30 35 minutes into the movie because it kind of sets it up for this whole uh investigative portion and why these things are happening and how are these things are happening and uh you know chris sarandon he actually takes a little bit of initiative to find out what exactly is going on in this apartment because he believes in you know his girlfriend allison that she's not completely insane because the police detectives believe that you know they've gotten involved in this and you know, and because she said that she stabbed up her father in this place and stuff. So now they're treating it like a homicide type deal. But they also are very convinced that she's absolutely insane because of her previous suicide attempts and stuff. But he believes that there's more to this than just her mental instability. So he starts to investigate and stuff. And then, you know, it kind of leads into a whole type of religious thing, you know, with the church and things like that. And um, I won't I don't really want to reveal a whole lot more because if you haven't seen this, I really want you to go out and see the Sentinel because it's an absolute amazing executed film. It's well acted. It's got creepy, creepy fucking characters, creepy scenes. Cinematography is fantastic. The music's great. Uh, just everything just unravels perfectly in this film. You know, it runs a perfect length, you know, something like 90 minutes. There's really no filler. It just it, it keeps you intrigued through the whole movie. And that's what these type of movies really should do. And it's got a great finale. Like the third act is phenomenal. It's got a whole pile of craziness, a whole pile of like really weird characters, things that are going on, but everything comes together quite nice. And I think it, uh, it unravels itself in a very elegant type of way. Um, yeah, the Sentinel is just straight up classic, classic stuff, you know, between good and evil. And, uh, yeah, man. It's just one of those type of stories. Really, really great stuff, man. I, You know, when I watch this movie, I'm always super envious of those old New York apartments with those like 20 foot ceilings and shit because I fucking love those things, man. I've always wanted to live in something like that. I think it's really, really damn cool. Uh, but uh, I digress, man. Just really, really great set pieces. Um, like I said, cinematography is fantastic. Acting, everything about this one is a total hit to me. Uh, the Sentinel, Michael Winner, 
masterpiece. 10 out of 10. I absolutely love this movie. I really don't understand why this thing only has like a 6.4 on IMDb. I know that's, you know, a tons of user raters, but you think a movie like this would be a little bit higher because it has just such an amazing cast. It just has such an, you know, an awesome narrative and it's, it's got a great conclusion to it. So I don't, I don't really see there's this movie having any type of problems and stuff. So, um, yeah, atmospheric is fucking hell, man. It's so cool. Uh, there's this really, really great scene involving, you know, her father and her stabbing up her father and shit like that. It's just really awesome shit. So, um, but I can't recommend the Sentinel. Recommend the Sentinel enough. Definitely go out and check it out if you've not. Screen Factory did drop a Blu-ray of it a couple years ago. It's fantastic looking. It really does the movie a lot of justice. And if you're into 70s, you know, atmospheric, um, just straight up horror, religious type, good first evil type things, then check this movie out. It's for you. Next up for me is Martyrs from the year 2015. This was given to me as a Patreon pick from Aaron. Uh, it is not the 2008 French Extreme version. This is the 2015 remake, which was an Americanized remake of the Patrick Lugier 2008 film Martyrs, which, you know, that Martyrs is in the 22 Shots Hall of Fame. Uh, this one is a film that kind of is a weird one, right? Because it seemed like it came out such a long time after the original Martyrs, uh, the, it really didn't have any buzz to capitalize on. Normally, when you see these um, Americanized versions, you look at 2008's Let the Right One In and then 2010's Let Me In. Uh, very quick turnaround for that film. Um, you had 2016's Train to Basan, and I believe there's a 2020 version coming out or a 2021, which is a little bit longer in time. Um, but, you know, typically we see these films, uh, these foreign films remade and Americanized kind of quicker. Um, Inside is another one that kind of followed this martyrs trend uh, being so far apart. I think Inside was first. Uh, so when this film got announced, I really wasn't too sure about it. Um, I thought that, okay, I'm not against Americanizing films to sort of show them to an American audience. Um, I had actually seen Quarantine before Wreck, and I loved Quarantine, and you know that made me want to check out Wreck. Uh, but this is a particular... Um, you know, it's a particular type of remake that I don't mind, but I can see why it's <clears throat> annoying because it, often it neuters the original film. And that's no case with this one. Uh, Martyrs follows a, a very similar story. Um, there is a child named Lucy who escapes from a building that she was held captive and tortured in. Uh, she spends the rest of her life in a foster uh, care or an orphanage rather where she befriends um a uh, another girl named Anna uh, eventually Lucy grows up 10 years later and finds the home of the family that allegedly tortured and held her captive in which she ex executes the family uh, with her friend Anna and it's sort of uh, up in the air if she actually uh, is insane or if these people who seem like a regular normal family actually did these horrible things to her and uh the plot gets a little bit crazier as the film goes on uh honestly like if you just see this film and never seen the original martyrs you'd be, probably be like oh that's a pretty good movie 
Um, but if you've seen Martyrs, this film is so pointless. There's just nothing that it offers uh, that Martyrs doesn't have, you know, the 08 version. Uh, it's it's not a horrible movie. It's just a horrible remake. There's nothing added to it. Um, it changes up the end a little bit, um, but for the most part, it feels more tame. Uh, it doesn't feel as raw, as powerful, as violent. Uh, even the opening scene where the family is murdered, you don't feel the impact and the weight of the severity of the situation like you did in the 08 version of Martyrs. It just feels like a lesser version of Martyrs, a watered down version of Martyrs, which is the exact thing that everybody thinks is going to happen with one of these remakes. So it feels very pointless and very misguided to even make this film. It's unfortunate. Um, I was watching this film and I was like, ah, man, this I've been avoiding this for so long. Uh, I didn't want to watch it. Uh, I got it as a Patreon pick. I started watching it and I was like, yeah, man, that was exactly what I was hoping it wouldn't be. I went to go log it on Letterboxd and I already had it logged. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, did I accidentally log this instead of the original martyrs one time? Nope. I went back and surely enough, I logged it. Um, in 2016, I uh, had the exact date there. Uh, and I was like, did I see this film before? I could have sworn I never have, but I actually had seen this. This film is so forgettable that I completely forgot that I'd seen it. I had thought that I was avoiding it, but really I'd already seen it. I watched it back in 2016 when it was released on DVD. Uh, and I actually looked back and I had reviewed this film on 22 shots as well. 2016, I reviewed it on episode number 71, uh, in which I gave it a six out of 10, uh, on the episode sweatshop from 2009. That was, uh, episode 71. So, uh, I actually have reviewed this film before, which is, is very funny to me, um, that I have reviewed this film before, but either way, um, I never want to watch it again. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that is that is martyrs, which is just, I cannot believe that I've reviewed it before. Uh, I, I, this time I, uh, I'm just going to give it a, uh, I'll give it the same rating six out of 10. It's, it's, it's a pointless remake, but it's, it's technically not a bad movie. God damn JP. That sucked. All right. So moving along here, uh, into my next Patreon pick, this is coming from the homeboy jelly Bane. Yeah. Uh, a TV film from 1989 called High Desert Kill. Uh, this is a movie I had actually never heard about before, which is very cool. I really enjoy when people pick movies I've never seen or have heard about. So that's pretty cool. And uh, I've always had a really high res respect and regard for, you know, 70s and 80s TV films. And, you know, if I get the chance, if they're horror related and things like that, I try to check them out because there's a lot of gems in there. We have found a lot of gems from doing a lot of different types of shows over the years and things like that. And, you know, just randomly seeking out these TV films. And there's some gems in there for sure, for sure. And a lot of these films don't have releases, so they're a little bit more obscure. I guess kind of like this one, because like I said, I'd never heard of this one, so... Uh, this one is uh, actually starring my man uh, Mark Singers in this one, <laughs> and it actually has uh, Chuck Connors in it too, which is pretty cool. Uh, basically, the premise of this one is about a group of friends that meet up every year to go on their annual hunting trip in the same spot. Uh, they get out to the woods, and they're having pretty tough luck. You know, they're not really finding any animals. In fact, they haven't really seen anything at all, and um, so they're starting to get a little bit frustrated. Anyways, they end up meeting up with this uh, 
um, this professional hunter played by Chuck Connors. And they, you know, obviously have the conversation with him about, you know, what's going on with the hunting this year because you're the professional. What are you seeing out there? And he's like, I'm not seeing anything. There's something seriously wrong here. And uh, so they kind of get on the same page about there might be a problem. Uh, they end up meeting up with these two chicks and stuff. They end up disappearing like right away. And and then all of a sudden, like, you know, they all kind of start acting strange and strange things start happening to them. They start seeing things and things are just not right. Um, they soon put the pieces of the puzzle together a little bit and they, they kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, something is not right here and they may be pawns in a certain type of game. So that's a quick little uh, synopsis on the film. Uh, my thoughts on this one. Yeah, this is definitely a TV film. It suffers from budget constraints for sure, because the narrative, which, you know, or the story, I'm not really going to try and go into the spoiler territory with that, but uh, I'll kind of let you guys, you know, if you want to check this out, figure it out for yourself. But uh yeah, man, this one definitely suffers from a lot of budget constraints, you know, of course, being a TV film and things like that. It's a slow burn. It takes a long time to kind of get going. Um, there is some interesting things happening until about the third act when, you know, it's what, you know, when the reveal happens and you kind of get to figure out exactly what is going on with these people and why they're acting so strange and why there's no animals and, and what's going on. I really like the premise of this movie. But it could have just been so much more with a budget, you know, maybe got things going a little bit quicker and kind of excelled what was going on because there's potential for a really, really good film here. I'm not saying by any means this wasn't a good film. I really enjoyed Chuck Connors as a professional hunter. Um, you know, the acting was a little bit shaky at times from other characters and things like that. But there was some interesting things happening in this. I thought it was shot pretty decent. Um, it's a TV film, so it usually has kind of like, you know, stock type music and things like that. There's nothing extremely well going on in those in those regards but uh um it is cool i like where it goes and you know like these type of premises have been done before <clears throat> but you know it, it's still it's still definitely one of those things that's fun to watch uh i like i said you know they they couldn't fully extend exactly the idea that they were kind of rolling with with this one but um you know it's still actually quite fun i like where it goes i had a lot of fun with it it's got a decent ending to it i guess and stuff and uh like i said i don't want to give the whole end away of the movie because it's kind of why you would watch this thing so um but high desert kill you know it's it's definitely a slow slow burn and don't get me wrong i generally really like these slow burns and stuff i just feel with the narrative being a little bit more interesting than you know some other films may be in in regard to being a slow burn um I just wish things had started out a little bit earlier in this one. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. High Desert Kill, still a decent TV movie. I'm going to come in about a 5 out of 10 on this one. I'm going to recommend maybe checking it out if you ever get the chance. Uh, it does have a rating of a PG-13, which is kind of interesting. There's not really a lot of craziness happening in this one. But um, yeah, High Desert Kill. Uh, thanks, Jellybean, for recommending that one because it was, you know, it was fun to check out. So, Yeah. All right, next up is Color Out of Space from the year 2019, got its wide release in 2020. I actually picked this one up on 4K and watched it a couple of months ago at this point, so it's not very fresh in my head, but I will give my brief thoughts on it. Uh, it is a film directed and co-written by Richard Stanley. Richard Stanley, you might know from Hardware dust devil and the island of dr monroe he actually got fired off of the island of dr monroe and kind of was out of work in terms of directing features since then so this is very interesting that he returns and i will say for somebody who hasn't directed a film in well over 20 years 
it looked very good. Uh, it's based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft called The Color Out of Space. Uh, it stars Nicol Nicolas Cage. Tommy Chung is also in here. And, uh, you know, this is this is a film that is, like I said, a H.P. Lovecraft film. I think for the longest time it was considered a hard film to adapt considering the subject matter of the film. Um, Richard Stanley actually um, wants to do more uh, films for from H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and this was actually a Spectre Vision production, uh, which is one of my favorite little independent labels there. They've done Toad Road, Cuties, A Girl Who Walks Home Alone at Night, The Boy, The Grazy Strangler, uh, the very popular breakout hit Mandy uh, from 2018, and then the 2019 breakout hit Daniel Isn't Real. Uh, so they've done and had their hand in a bunch of different horror films that have been popular. Um, and yeah, so Color Out of Space, it follows um, a secluded farm is struck by a strange meteorite which has an apocalyptic consequence for the family living there and possibly the world uh so um this film uh has some really really cool pinkish colored stuff there's uh basically all these um you know this this color is growing uh on this farm where this meteor hits it really did remind me of the weird thing that happened to Jordy Verrill in um, Stephen King's Creep Shows, uh, he plays Jordy Verrill in in Creep Show. Um, it's it's not exactly like that, but it just kind of that's what I expected, and that's kind of what it reminded me a little bit of. Um, and you know, you have Nicolas Cage going full Cage in in this film, not right away. He sort of you know waits a little bit and then and then he he lets it out uh with some some funny freak out and uh then we also have tommy chong who plays a pothead go figure and and that's pretty funny overall i i was a little bit um disappointed with this one uh not necessarily that i thought it was bad because i don't i think it's a pretty good movie uh i just was expecting a little bit more um and I kind of was a little bit overhyped on it. Uh, it's it's a decent movie. It it has some cool effects. I almost wish there would have been they would have played that up a little bit more. There's like a little insect. It turns pink and it looks really cool. I, I just wanted to see everything and just I, I almost wanted it to be more like Jordy Verrill, uh, the way that it overtakes things and and there's some like there's some decent you know effects and stuff like that. But I even wanted it to to go even further, um, but. Yeah, I gave it a 7 out of 10. That's the color out of space. Alrighty, so moving along here. Thank you, JP, for that awesome review. Uh, next up is a, uh, a film picked by my man Dave, a.k.a. Mr. Parker. Um, it is a film from 1975 called The Killer of Dolls. Yes, uh, this is a film that was actually put out by Mondo Macabro on Blu-ray. I'd never heard of this movie until they dropped it. And it did look interesting, and I'm very happy that Mr. Parka, a.k.a. Dave, picked this for me because, you know, it's it's Mondo Macabre. You, you, you kind of know what you're going to get with Mondo films. You know, they're very usually obscure and oddities, and that's kind of what you get here. So uh, this is a Spanish production directed by Miguel Madrid. And uh, getting into a quick little synopsis, basically this one follows our main character, Paul. 
Now, Paul has just been uh, kind of kicked out of medical school because he's scared of blood. So he moves back to the small hometown that he's from, uh, specifically onto the estate where his parents work uh, for this, you know, this wealthy mistress in this huge mansion. His father actually is the groundskeeper and his mother, I think, works inside as the maid or something like that. Uh, so he moves on to the estate shortly after arriving there. Um, you know, his parents decide that they're going to go on vacation. So he decides that he'll take over the groundskeeper duties and kind of watch over things while they're on holidays until they get back. Uh, meanwhile, you know, just, you know, as they leave and stuff, uh, some women around the town and the estate and stuff like that end up getting killed. And um, yeah, that's basically the synopsis of the film. Now, getting into my thoughts on this one. Now, the movie opens up with this really kind of interesting monologue, and it tells you what exactly the meaning of the movie is. Uh, they say it's a study of a psychopath and, uh, you know, about double personalities and things like that. So I thought that was quite interesting. So you pretty much know what you're getting yourself into right away. This character, Paul, is obviously um, got a split personality. And what you're seeing is, you know, just what he doesn't really know. You know, um, we get to see everything, you know, from a split personality perspective. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, Paul is this very kind of flamboyant person. He's very odd. You know, he he, he says very strange things and, uh, you know, he plays with dolls. He likes to take them apart. He likes to, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, do surgery on them because, you know, he was going to medical school, remove the hearts and things like that. But he essentially is kind of obsessed with dolls and, and masks and mannequins and, and things like that. He likes to hang around with, with smaller children. He's not a pedophile or anything, but he just, he kind of befriends like, you know, the small boy and things like that. And he, he's odd because he's like 20 years old and he's never, you know, kissed a girl and he's kind of waiting for the right girl and things like that. It's, there's just so many odd things about him, but you know, obviously Paul has something stemming from childhood childhood that's very dramatic and and problematic in his in his adult life because you know he suffers from visions and um you know he sees things a lot differently he sees people as like mannequins he sees you know uh dolls he sees masks he just sees a whole pile of shit that we're not seeing right so there's obviously something a little bit wrong with him um i really like how the the narrative kind of progresses itself in this you know, for the first hour in the film, you know, you, you keep thinking to yourself, you know, like you got split personality, but what exactly has caused this? You know, is it something stemming? It's obviously something stemming from his childhood, but is it like directly from his parents? Is something maybe they abused him or maybe, you know, they did something else to him and things like that. Uh, it does fully get explained and shit, which I, I really do like that. Um, yeah, there's some other oddities in the film, like, you know, he ends up kind of befriending and almost dating the mistress's daughter, who's like 16 years old. There's even a point in the film where they end up showing her tits and she's actually like 16 in real life. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, it is of the times, mid seventies, you know, Europe, you know, Spanish things and stuff like that, but still things like that are very odd. Um, you know, the genetic makeup of the film is quite interesting, too. It starts out and it's got this very kind of like a black exploitation type music going on for it. The editing is very strange. At times, the editing is that actually quite sloppy, but it doesn't really affect, you know, like like how you're perceiving the film at all. I, obviously, it wasn't done on purpose, but there is a lot of fast paced editing and things like that, even some editing mistakes and shit like that. But, you know, overall, I think the guy that played Paul was brilliant man the casting for him was awesome i thought he did a really really good job i think actually a lot of the characters in this film did you know played the roles the way they were supposed to um but again very very odd scenes you know just a lot of delusional scenes he's seen odd things and things like that there's this one scene in the film 
that is so strange. It's like it basically turns into this music video in this amphitheater, in this outdoor amphitheater, and uh, you know a bunch of people end up getting killed and things like that. And but it's just so weird because they play the whole song and it's like it's like what the fuck is happening, right? Like I mean, is this really happening or you know is this is what he's seen and shit like that? So a whole pile of that. And I really really enjoyed the third act in this movie too. The way it kind of comes kind of comes full circle and things like that but a very interesting character study on somebody but you know it's again quite different the way they did it because they tell you straight up front that it is you know the study of a psychopath and double personalities you know schizophrenia things like that so you kind of know what's going on and things like that but um you know there's a fair amount of kills in the film uh it's a little bit bloody it's not like overly gory and things like that but um you know, overall, very, very enjoyable. I like the way the killer looks. You know, he's got this white mask. He wears, like, this long hair kind of wig thing. And, uh, yeah, the killer looks pretty cool. You know, it's set up just like a slasher film. Uh, it has kind of, like, giallo elements to it. It's got, almost got, like, this black exploitation type feel to it. Uh, but then it's got, like, this kind of, like, whole David Lynch kind of weirdness going on with it, too. It's very odd. Uh, I couldn't recommend this movie enough. I had a blast with it, man. So if you like really kind of strange films that deal with uh, schizophrenia, double personalities, things stemming from childhood and stuff, this is definitely one for you. I mean, if you're a fan of Maniac, this one shares a lot of similarities with Maniac. I mean, you know, it's got, you know, the mannequins, like I said, you know, he... You know, he sees mannequins, he sees dolls, you know, he sees masks, he just sees all this kind of weird shit. And he's obviously got problems that are stemming from, you know, childhood, like parents issues, mommy issues and things like that. So even though this one came out before and I don't think Lustig, you know, took from this one, he probably never even heard of this movie because it's pretty obscure. But um, it does share a lot of similarities with Maniac, which is quite interesting. So, uh, but uh, yeah, overall great great film i'm gonna come in at about a nine out of ten on this one uh, i couldn't recommend it enough there's just so many fucking creepy ass scenes in this film i mean if you're not a fan of dolls and mannequins and things like that because i've always really enjoyed watching movies with like dolls like freaky looking dolls and freaky masks and mannequins and shit and you know and i don't know why i do because the shit actually legitimately kind of freaks me out a little bit too um but this one has a lot of that aesthetic in it man there's a lot of scenes with all that shit in there so um, pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. I enjoyed it, man. Um, what can I say? The Killer Dolls from 1975. Check it out. Now we move on to Wicked City from the year 1987. This is an anime horror film, and it's based on Black Guard, which is a series of novels. It's the first in a series of six novels uh, by the same name, Wicked City. So the story takes place towards the end of the 20th century and explores the idea that a human world secretly coexists with a demon world with a secret police force known as the Black Guard protecting the boundary. So the opening of this film follows a man who uh, is having sex with this girl. Uh, there's nudity. There's actually a lot of nudity in this film. And this woman turns into this spider-like creature with a vagina with teeth and she has stolen his semen uh this guy is also a black guard worker and he must protect this old guy who is like 200 years old and he's supposed to sign this new treaty uh he also partners up with this girl who eventually uh has a love interest with there's all this like tentacle there's like these tentacle gang rapes and there's just nudity and uh just like 
the the little dude's a little perverted and it's 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 a very um raw like sort of violent and um graphic is the word i was looking for graphic uh anime horror film and i honestly didn't expect to see uh is you know graphic stuff like like this tentacle gang rape that you know i didn't expect that um but i love the animation in this film like from right honestly like the opening of this film kind of had me um on board right away like the way that the the way the 80s and 90s um and even 70s animation was done is just so much better than like the cg stuff we get today um it you know this hand-drawn gritty like new york-esque type of city um is just beautiful it's beautiful to look at it's gritty it feels dark and you know like uh, underground I, I like that and you know the this sort of alternate dimension demon world you know coexisting with the the human world and stuff like that it, it all has this very underground feel um that works really well overall i, I really like this film i thought that it i thought that it was you know a a, a very solid um, anime horror film and I, I don't really love anime horror films but um I, I i guess i like all the ones i've seen so um wicked city in uh seven and a half out of ten for that one. Oh yeah thank you jp for that very informative and short review all right so moving along here man we are going to get into a a uh, film from 1972 that I did not actually watch for the um, top 10 in 1972 show coming from a man, James Couch, and it is titled The Strange Vengeance of Rosalie. Uh, it's actually a movie I'd never heard of before, um, so I was a little bit intrigued by the title, and right off the bat, I thought it may be a giallo that I'd never heard of, but then I, I looked at who directed it, and I realized that Jack Starrett had uh, directed the movie, and I knew right away it was not uh, a giallo, um, because Starrett, he actually um, directed, uh, honestly, one of my favorite 70s films, man. It has one of the greatest endings, too, Race with the Devil. Um, among films, you know, actually, I... You know, did a little bit of homework and looked up what else he had done, and realized he'd done Slaughter, the black exploitation film, Cleopatra Jones. He'd done The Losers, um, so that's pretty cool. The Gravy Train. Um, so I was like, yeah, man, that's pretty interesting. So it kind of piqued my interest on this movie. Uh, so getting into a quick, quick little synopsis here. Um, this one basically follows our main character Rosalie, who is hitchhiking. Um, She's picked up by the other main character, Virgil, who is a traveling salesman. And he ultimately takes her back to her, like, kind of broken down shack and stuff like that. She's very dirty and just kind of lives off the land and stuff. He basically kind of feels sorry for her and stuff. And um, ultimately, Rosalie actually attacks him, kind of smashes up his knee a little bit and uh, ties him to a bed and, you know, keeps him there. Keeps him there. And ultimately, you know, just... Uh, tries to nurse him back to health and shit like that. So uh, a quick little synopsis on the film. Now, my thoughts on this one. Uh, now, if that synopsis or that um, narrative kind of sounds familiar, it's because it's very, very close to Stephen King's misery. Uh, I will note that, and I'm not going to say that Stephen King stole the narrative or the story from this movie for his uh, misery story, but this movie did come out in 1972, obviously years before he either wrote misery and was the movie was produced and I believe in the mid nineties. Uh, but you can't help but notice that the narratives are very, very similar here. Uh, Rosalie's 
motives are a little bit different than, you know, Misery's. Uh, the motives in there. She's a little bit less violent. She's very lonely. Uh, the beginning of the mo- movie starts out with her actually digging, digging a grave. And um, it's kind of a really kind of dark opening and things like that. But you get to know her right away that she's very lonely. And that's probably her main motive for attacking Virgil and keeping him there against his own will. Because, you know, she just wants to be with somebody. She wants their, she wants someone to be there around her because her grandfather had just passed away a couple days before and stuff like that. And so she's ultimately kind of lost her mind. Even though she's not really fully right in the head because she's very uneducated. She doesn't really, you know, understand the world and the way things work and stuff like that. So, um, so you just have this kind of conflict. You know, Virgil's really, he kind of understands that she is this type of person. She's uneducated. She's lonely and stuff. So he's kind of, you know, smooth talking his uh, his way out of this and stuff. And, you know, it, it's just a lot of that. You know, we got these two main characters that do such a good job. Uh, Rosalie is actually played by Bonnie Bedelia, who is, of course, um, from uh, the Die Hard movies. She plays Holly in the Die Hard movies. I recognized her right away. And I was like, man, is that is that fucking Holly from Die Hard? And sure as shit, it was. She's very young in this movie. She's about 24. She plays a young teenager, though, like an underage girl and stuff. Um and she definitely looks the part, but she was really, really damn cute in the early 70s. Uh, Virgil's played by Ken Howard, of course, who's in just tons and tons of shit. And we have a third character in the movie. Play, um, his name is Fry, who is actually played by Anthony Zerbe, who is, of course, in tons and tons of shit also. Ken Howard and Anthony Zerbe are those two guys where if you saw them, you'd recognize them right away. I'm not going to list off all the shit they've been in. but uh, um, So it's a very small cast. Uh, I will say the acting in this movie was really good. I like the sets. Um, or the locations used and stuff, it captures that kind of small town, just, you know, funky, living off the land type deal and stuff. Um, you know, Bonnie does a great job in this movie. I think her acting is fantastic. She kind of pulls off this kind of stupid, naive, uh, dirty, filthy hygiene girl who's kind of lost in reality. Um, but uh, I think my main problem is with the film is that... Um, I think her motivations are just a little bit too simple in the movie. Like I understand that she's alone and she, you know, just doesn't want to be that way. So she wants someone there with her and stuff. I think there could have been a lot more here. There is another, um, like an antagonist in the film. Uh, Anthony Zerbe's character is someone that's taken advantage over her. And he also finds out that her grandfather has passed away. So, and her grandfather potentially has, you know, some treasure, like some gold and stuff. So he's after that and stuff. So we got this complication in the middle of it also. Um, but you know, ultimately the movie's leading up to the final, you know, to the finale and, and one key scene and stuff. And I don't really think it packs the hugest punch. I think it was kind of executed a little bit fugly. Um, but uh, overall, man, I really did enjoy the movie. You know, the motivations and Rosalie and Virgil's interactions and stuff kind of kept me going through the movie, kept me interested. I wanted to see where it was going to go. I was wanting to see if she was going to get crazy, even more crazy, crazy violence and, and you know, things like that. But uh, um, ultimately, I did enjoy this one. I don't think it's phenomenal, but it's definitely worth the look. Um, I'm going to probably come in about a six and a half out of ten on this one. And uh, yeah, so that is The Strange Vengeance of Rosalie. And I will say strange in the title actually is very fitting because, like I said, her motivations and just the way her character is, it is very strange. <laughs> so um, yeah, Strange Vengeance of Rosalie from 1972. All right, next up is Murderlust. 1985 this was given to me by dave parker aka mr parker thank you for this patreon pick 
Uh, it is a 1985 film. I had mentioned that I haven't really seen many gems from 1985 uh, because that's what we're prepping for right now for our next top 10 show. And he said, check out Murder Lust. So I just took his word for it and I went ahead and bought the DVD right away. Uh, it was a Intervision title, which is owned by Severin. I uh, paid 11 bucks for it and I was not disappointed. Definitely well worth the purchase. Uh, Murder Lust follows a serial killer who is actually a handsome Sunday school teacher who abducts young woman, women and disposes of their bodies in the Mojave Desert. Uh, so right away, man, I I'll say I really like this film. Um, it reminds me of a Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or Confessions of a Serial Killer, which also came out in 1985. I don't think it's specifically uh, based on any type of serial killer, but it reminds me of a cross between Ted Bundy and someone like Henry Lee Lucas. Uh, Ted Bundy, of course, being that serial killer who's handsome and, you know, likable and has a good personality and just kind of woos people and uh, the depravity of me, of uh, Henry Lee Lucas and the, um, you know, the dumping of the bodies and stuff kind of reminded me of that too. Um, but yeah, this serial killer, um, is, is, you know, very disturbing. Um, there's, there's a scene where he, you know, picks this girl up who, uh, is pot, you know, based on what, how the dialogue goes, I assume is underage and makes her, um, you know, give him oral sex and holds a gun to her head. It's just, you know, very very disturbing stuff. Um, this is a little bit of a gem, man. It is a gem of a, uh, horror film. It's, it's, it's a serial killer film and it's good. Uh, I gave it a seven and a half out of 10, very solid, uh, little, um, psychological, you know, horror thriller where you kind of ride with the serial killer. It's from his point of view. Uh, very much liked it. Oh, yeah, JP, another good one. Baby, baby. <laughs> All right, so moving along here. Uh, this next pick is coming from my man Dave, a.k.a. Mr. Parka, and it is 2014's Digging Up the Marrow, of course, directed by Adam Green. Now, I can't help but notice the reason why I probably got this pick from my man Dave is because I mentioned on the show that I'd actually never seen this movie before. Um it's not because I'm an Adam Green hater and stuff. I just kind of lost track of it. And what I mean by that is that I've had the Blu-ray for years in my collection. I just not never got around to checking it out, uh, which is odd because I am an Adam Green fan, like I said, and I really like these kind of mockumentary, documentary style type films. And uh, this one just kind of eluded me. So, yeah, uh, thank you, Dave, for picking this one for me. Um, okay, yeah, so 2014, Digging Up the Mirror, quick little synopsis. It's basically Adam Green playing himself, and he's he gets this idea because uh, for, you know, doing this documentary-style film because he receives this uh, package in the mail um, from a guy named William Decker. And William Decker has basically told him that monsters are real. And this piques Adam Green's interest because his whole life he's always wanted to see or prove that monsters actually are real and this guy William Decker played by Ray Weiss has basically kind of convinced him that he has found real monsters and that he wants to show them to him and you know do some further investigation so of course Adam Green gets a crew together and they uh they go and explore the you know the uh, visions of Ray Weiss um so my 
thoughts on the movie. Uh, like I said, man, I really enjoy these type of films that, you know, incorporate real life stuff like Adam Green plays him stuff and then, you know, kind of incorporates this, uh, you know, this this fic- fictional story. Uh, about monsters and stuff. I, I think it, it can work really, really well. Um, I really like the setup in this, you know. Uh, I thought it was going really, really good. You know, Adam Green, you know, he's very excited about, you know, exploring this, you know, possibility of finding real monsters and things like that. And it's all cool and stuff. And then basically what kind of brings it down for me a little bit is uh, once they go to meet William Decker, played by Ray Wise. That's when it kind of loses a lot of impact for myself because I wish that Adam Green had have found a very, very unknown actor for this part because Ray Wise to me is very known and it just instantly just kind of threw the whole, you know, real documentary uh, style out the window for me and just turned it into a straight up like mockumentary, even though that's what I know it is, but it would have been just more believable, maybe a little bit more fun for myself if Ray Wise wasn't William Decker. And I'm not saying that Ray Wise was bad as the William Decker character. I thought he actually played the character really, really damn well. But I just kept thinking, I'm like, Adam Green's himself and Ray Wise is playing William Decker. I'm like, this is this contrast is not really working for me because I know Adam Green's a real person and William Decker is a fictitious character and it was just kind of throwing me off a little bit, but I did get past it and stuff, but uh, I had a lot of fun with this movie, you know, incorporating Adam Green's real life. You know, they talk about Holliston and he's got his real crew there. His wife even makes an appearance in the film and, you know, so they have all that kind of going on and stuff. And uh, so William Decker's backstory is that he's actually like um, he was a PI in Boston and stuff. And once he retired, you know, he found this um, this hole in the ground, you know, kind of thing. And uh, he named it uh, the he, he named it the marrow. And this is basically the place where these monsters kind of come and go. And he figures that, you know, they live underneath the ground and, you know, in this whole kind of metropolitan type thing and stuff. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, man, this whole idea sounds crazy familiar, like Nightbreeds, <laughs> the, the, the narrative from Nightbreed, uh, which I did not know. Um, yeah, it, it sounds exactly like where all the freaks live in in Midian in Nightbreed. It's basically kind of the same narrative, essentially, you know. Um, He has this idea that the reason why monsters exist is because there is people that are born on Earth that are deformed and just are not accepted by society. And he figures this is the place where they go to live. They go in the holes. They go to the marrow, as he calls it. And they live, and that's what they do. And, you know, um, he just kind of wants to exploit this a little bit. The William Decker character is quite interesting. I do like the way he's portrayed in the movie because, you know, at first you think he's just absolutely insane. And then there's a scene in the movie where you actually do get a clip of this actual monster. And I'm like, okay, so this is kind of interesting. Where is this going? Um, But, you know, it kind of leads you into an area where I think you kind of figured it's going to go. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, not overly disappointing, but it does kind of do what you expect it to do and stuff. But I, I had a lot of fun with this movie, to be honest. Like I enjoyed Adam Green, uh, for the most part, I felt like there was times where actually going back to the first scene where he meets, uh, the William Decker character, of course, played by Ray Wise. Uh, I feel like Adam Green was totally playing himself. And then when he goes to interview 
William Decker, he turns into like somebody else. Like all of a sudden it's just not Adam Green being natural Adam Green. It's like he's trying to act even though he's playing himself. <laughs> I was like, they even allude to the fact that he's even like a bad actor and stuff in the movie. There's a lot of kind of like very self-aware jokes and stuff in this, but uh, which I did enjoy throughout. And I got to say Adam Green's shirts that, you know, in every different scene are pretty awesome too. Um, but I had a lot of fun with this, man. I thought the effects were really good in it. It was, uh, it was dark enough. It was, it, and it wasn't like overly, it wasn't overly, uh, comedic, you know, it had those comedic moments in it and stuff, but they didn't try to overdo it and shit. I thought it was really, really well done and stuff. So, um, digging up the marrow, I'm going to have to probably say, I'm going to come in about a seven out of 10. I didn't think it was phenomenal. It did keep me interested through the whole thing. I do respect, you know, Adam Green for trying this, especially at a time like 2014, these kind of documentaries found footage style mockumentaries and stuff were coming out quite regularly. Uh, it was interesting enough for him to, to tackle this. I felt like it was almost too similar to Nightbreed. Uh, but at the same time, I still enjoyed that because I love Nightbreed. So, um, but yeah, that's digging up the marrow from 2014. Yeah. All right. Next up is the film Night of Horror from the year 1981. And this was given to me by Tony Hartman. And my God, why did you do this to me? So this is a film. Uh, the synopsis is as follows. Steven's buddy Chris can't understand why he's reluctant to play in their band. So one night at Steve's house, he tells Chris a story about traveling to Baltimore to meet up with his brother, Jeff, who uh, so they can check out a cabin in Virginia left to them by their father. They hit the road in an RV along with Colleen, Jeff's wife, and her friend Susan. Along the way, Steve finds out Colleen can see ghosts and starts playing footsies with her after she reads an Edgar Allan Poe story. When they reach the cabin, they approach by ghosts of the Confederate soldiers who tell them stories about their dead captain. So that synopsis right there is literally the whole movie. Um, it is a awful, awful movie. Painful. Uh, I... It opens up with long lines of dialogue and then driving and then more dialogue and then driving and then they more dialogue and then they read a whole Edgar Allan Poe story and pretty much uh, it's horrible. It's, it's just absolutely dreadful. The Confederate ghost is lame. Then there's what I assume is stock footage of, of Confederates. And honestly, I'm going to do something unprecedented here and I'm going to read an entire review off of IMDb uh, because it sums up the movie pretty well. It says, where do I even start with this one? This film you're about to see is a depiction of an actual event while documented in the annals of the paranormal. That's a quote. I should have gone with my instinct and immediately switched off the film when I read that statement. The film, and I use that word in the loosest sense, begins with a three minute long title scene accompanied by a horrendous piano ballad by the filmmaker's own real life band, leading into an eight minute long conversation. By the way, guys, this is why I picked this review because it breaks down how painful this movie is. Eight minutes of stationary, over-the-shoulder photography, meandering, nearly stream-of-consciousness conversation, barely audible in the crummy audio, with these two men babbling, name-dropping their band, eventually about a bizarre, boring experience one of them, Steve, had as he obviously stutters his lines a couple of times. 
The audio is so garbled that much of it is unintelligible. But we do know they use they use lighting equipment because you it is clearly visible on the right center of the frame, largely blowing out the shot. After so very slowly setting up the paper thin plot in this over the shoulder prologue, the film lapses into flashback for some reason, as we're told the story of Steve, his half brother, and his wife and their friends driving. When asked what did they use the uh, for the money? Steve responds, chocolate milk and batteries. What? Question mark. From 16 minutes on, they drive. We see them driving underneath a bridge, looking out the window at passing landscapes, passing ships on the river. One girl reads an Edgar Allan Poe story in its entirety while liter, 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 literary critic, sorry, literary critic Steve criticizes it then critiques their food and beer breathtaking from 23 minutes to 29 minutes a triangular blotch appears at the bottom center of the frame that also appeared on my copy good luck finding this film by the way at 26 26 minutes the quartet get out and argue and it's difficult to take them seriously when steve is obviously smiling and trying not to laugh characters interrupt each other frames abruptly cut out uh, probably to avoid awful dialogue, back in the camper for more driving. At 29 minutes, they allegedly hit someone off camera. If they couldn't get an actor to play the character they hit, why didn't they just take this scene out? It shouldn't go anywhere or lead to anything, so why is the scene even here? At 30 minutes, back in the van for more driving and an awful piano ballad. At 33 minutes, the camper breaks down. Good, no more driving. Day changes the night and back and forth many times as they try to figure out what to do. A real exchange of dialogue in this scene. Chris, don't tell me you're taking a coffee break. To which Steve responds, nope, a beer break and not even a beer break. Again, what? <laughs> I don't want to even remember that dialogue, guys. Uh, at 38 minutes, one girl begins having a one-sided conversation with a spirit, I think. Footage here is dark. Yeah, it is dark. I, I do remember that scene. I'm not sure even what the bloody hell we're looking at here. Tree limbs? Yeah, dude, it's so funny. The scene's so dark. You're just like, what is she talking to? Why don't we see it? And more importantly, here, who is she speaking to? She convinced two or three of her friends. Steve was likely too drunk or disoriented to show up in this film to film the scene, so he is represented in a voiceover narration to hold a seance to speak to spirits. Unfortunately, the spirits answer them. At 40 minutes, the seance begins. We catch a glimpse of a rare, elusive flashback within a flashback as the Civil War reenactment footage begins and the piano ballerly begins yet again. The actor's real-life band performs seamlessly and endlessly. We're trying for an anti-war message here. I lost track of how long and and I don't know that word goes on for, but the seance and the Civil War reenactment footage continues until 63 minutes. So from 40 minutes to 63 minutes. This is horrible, guys. I'm telling you, it's a horrible movie. Apparently, a Civil War captain lost his head and needs help to get it back and bury it in the uh, with his body so he can at last rest at peace. The three of them... Um, dig up his skull which is obviously plastic and bury it with the rest of his plastic body um i wish i could say say i'm making that up that's your plot right there the film concludes with an epilogue and spoiler alert and stationary over-the-top shoulder photography meandering nearly stream of consciousness conversation barely audible in this crummy audio with these two men babbling uh, and the visible lighting equipment 
blowing out a lot of the frame return before the piano music again performed by the filmmaker's own real life band returns yet again in the closing credits the film seems merely an excuse to showcase their music and name drop their no-name band everything in that movie is completely bad and i just thought that this guy did such a great job reviewing it that i should shout him out so yeah it's a horrible movie 0.5 out of 10 tony what the hell is wrong with you all righty yeah jp another awesome review not <laughs> i'm just fucking with you man all righty so moving along here next patreon pick is from the homeboy sean clump uh, it's a film from 2014 called the treatment this is a film from belgium spoken in dutch language uh released by Artsploitation a couple years back i know this one's gotten rave reviews i know jeremy loves this one i know even jp has reviewed this one i believe also and they gave it uh a lot of street creds so um this is one for some odd reason i never checked out i don't know why i didn't check this movie out i think i kind of forgot about it i had a copy of it and just kind of forgot about this one um i know it deals with some very sensitive uh, content and things like that and you know but it does get a lot of praise um so jumping in quick little synopsis of this one this one follows our main character nick quick little backstory on nick when nick was a child his uh, brother was abducted and went missing and the case actually went unsolved it went cold so we never got any closure you know about his brother's disappearance if his brother was dead or if his brother was alive and uh so it always kind of haunted him jump forward 20 something years later now he's a police officer and uh, of course, the case still weighs very, very heavily on him because he deals with, you know, this type of thing in his work. And, um, you know, there was a person of interest in his brother's disappearance who was questioned and later released. Uh, so, you know, he was always very, very bothered by this and stuff. And the odd thing about this is that, you know, the person that was questioned and released about his brother's disappearance actually kept harassing Nick throughout his, throughout his life about his brother's disappearance, but he could never pin it on him. So it really, really bothered him, uh, jumped to the present day. You know, Nick is, um, dealing with this new case. This nine-year-old boy goes missing and it just seems very eerily close to his brother's case and as he digs deeper into the into the case he starts to find similarities that may actually link this new disappearance to his brother's disappearance and um yeah so that's pretty much the case of nick trying to figure out what's going on with uh these abductions and things like that um now my thoughts on this movie wow this is one of the most bleak movies i've seen in such a long time it is just a very very compelling mystery thriller uh film i mean the movie isn't a straight up horror film but the content itself is very very horrific and especially the way that they um that they deal with the you know with the content because this movie is obviously dealing with like child abuse and pedophiles and things like that Uh, to keep it very short and I'm going to try to keep it very much spoiler free as much as I can Um, but the way the story develops in this you know he's dealing with the disappearance of this nine-year-old boy and you know he's dealing with his his own personal fears and problems about you know his brother's disappearance but as this one develops man it's just it's so crazy man the this one runs about two hours, 15 minutes, and there's not a moment of boringness in this one whatsoever. Uh, you know, I think it's very interesting how the director managed to keep this movie, um, you know, to keep it grounded. Uh, grounded maybe is, I don't know, but 
to show this type of content when you're dealing with pedophiles and you're dealing with child abuse and stuff, not to go over the top and make it exploitive. It kind of keeps it grounded a little bit. And I love the way this one develops, man. It's just absolutely crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so when you're dealing with pedophiles and and all this type of stuff it's very stomach turning and shit like that but man the way this movie develops and the things that you find out in the reveals are just second to none there's so many different type of twists and turns in this film and developments within you know the characters and shit like that you're just like where the fuck is this thing going like this is crazy crazy shit uh you know it's stories like this where you think that they're based on true stories, but this is actually based off a novel and someone just thought this shit up and I'm like, wow, it's fucking absolutely crazy. Um, such an exciting thrill ride. I mean, it's very passionate. It's, it's very unforgiving in the reveals, you know, it's just a all around great thriller. The mystery is really, really on point. I think the way they reveal things and how they reveal things in this movie is done to a T, you know, it's just, they kind of come out of nowhere and stuff. I think the investigative part of this is just phenomenal. Very, very suspenseful. It's such a dark movie in tone and content that works perfectly. And I think that's where you kind of get that, that horror element to it also. A lot of great atmospheric scenes. It is shot beautifully. It's acted well. The pacing is brilliant in this one. Uh, there's not really a lot of specs in this movie that you can really kind of downplay. The score is great. Um, you know, I just, I couldn't recommend this movie enough. Um, you know, with all that said, coming to the third act, which again, you know, going back to the twists and turns, it just kind of leaves you going, holy shit, man, it, where the fuck is this thing going kind of thing? And then, you know, the end hits and it's really a huge gut punch. It really is. It just fucking knocks you right the fuck down. And everything that was building up to what the reveal is at the end is absolutely crazy because it's one of those moments where you're like, damn, man, damn. And it, it keeps you thinking, man, for days and days and days. I mean, like I said, I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to give specifics about anything, but this is definitely a movie that you have to check out. I know it deals with that very grotesque uh, content of like, you know, pedophiles and child abuse and, and, you know, just child crimes in general are very hard to digest, but you know, this one's done very beautifully. It's not over exploitive. And that was actually one thing that I was very, probably the biggest thing I was impressed with, with this movie is that even though I love really corny and bad exploitive type films and shit like that, this one manages, like I said before, to keep it gr itself grounded, but it's crazy because it brings you to the brink of so many different type of scenes, you know, whether he's watching a videotape of little boys being raped or something like that, it doesn't quite show up, but it shows you enough, you know, it, it gets those visuals in your mind enough that you are strictly just going, oh my God, this is fucking crazy. But that's not even the half of it, man. There's so many other developments in this movie that it's just disgusting, it's sickening, it's vile. It's just, oh man, really, really great film. I can't recommend this one enough. Uh, thank you, Sean Klump, for finally making me watch this movie. I actually watched this with the wife too, and she's like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. Like, what the fuck? She's like, that was a great movie. But man, you know, again, it's hard to digest, but... Um, my rating, 10 out of 10, perfect movie. Again, you know, this is a Dutch, uh, language film, so you're going to have to read this one, uh, but it's definitely worth your time. So yeah, the treatment from 2014. All right. Next up is also from Tony Hartman. And this film is actually much better, even though it's, you know, super low budget. It's called the orange man, 2015. Uh, and it says in 1987, a delusioned door-to-door -door orange salesman horrifically murders his first victim. Move forward 27 years and a land developer is buying an orange grove. 
he and his three friends plan a fishing trip to get his head around the pending transaction. Unbeknownst to them, his estranged wife and her new boyfriend have also chosen the very same location for a break. The usual strange noises and unnerving situations ensure when the congruate when the when they con great con congregate fuck i'm an idiot when they congregate <laughs> i'm leaving this in i'm leaving this in when they congregate <laughs> when they congregate at a secluded cabin as the orange man eliminates them one by one with the aid of his prosthetic hook and a bag of oranges wow i'm a moron uh, yeah, so this film uh, was actually really fun. One thing that's interesting about this movie is it, you can tell it's super low budget and it, it just has that ridiculous plot like The Orange Man, you know? It reminds me of the films that Mikey Fisher give me all the time, like um, the, the Billy Club. was. It reminds me of Billy Club a lot as well as... Uh, what the hell was the other one that, that he gave me recently? Um, Slot, Camp Slaughter or something? The, it reminds me of those type of movies. Uh, it's essentially a slasher film with a ridiculous killer, um, cheesy as hell, uh, performances, dialogue, writing, all that. The one cool thing about this movie, though, is that it looks and feels like a real horror film uh, in terms of color correction and lighting and, and direction and camera work and stuff like that. It actually looks a lot better quality than the you know script and dialogue and you know acting is, which is pretty funny. Um, it's, it's, it's a very easy movie to watch. I actually really had fun with it. It was, it was one that's, you know, perfect to throw on in a, with a group of people. Um, there's one particular scene that had me laughing and that's where we're getting a POV shot of a dude in a wheelchair who is pissing and I uh, can't stop pissing. He's like pissing all over the house and we're getting a POV from the, from his, you know, basically his penis but we see the tip of his penis and it's, it's hilarious um some of the kills are, are ridiculous like there's a girl trying to escape and this dude's throwing oranges at her and stuff and she like falls into the lake and dies it's, it's really funny um overall honestly it, it's it's a it's a pretty fun movie I, I can't go high on it but i'll give it a five and a half it's it's pretty solid i recommend checking it out if you never have especially if you like those type of movies Wow, JP, that sucked. All right, so moving along here into my next Patreon pick. Uh, this is coming from the homeboy Aaron. Uh, film from 2019 titled Jojo Rabbit. Uh, I had actually heard of this movie because I knew it was from the director of uh, What We Do in the Shadows and, of course, Thor Ragnarok and stuff. So I was actually a little bit interested in this movie. I'm not 100% sure why this was chose for me because it's not a horror film whatsoever. It's actually more of a like a World War II satire. Uh, it's like a comedic drama war film in a sense. Um, basically about this kid named Jojo who's in training to be in uh, you know Hitler's army to be a Nazi. He's about a 10-year-old boy and stuff and he's kind of going through the motions and his whole world revolves around fighting in this uh in this war and stuff because his father is over in apparently in Italy fight fighting you know against uh you know fighting the the war as a nazi and things like that so he's kind of going you know doing his thing day by day you know going to camp and things like that and then uh his world is kind of crushed when he finds out that his mother is actually housing a jew 
uh, inside the walls of the house he lives in. So now he's kind of torn on what to do because, you know, he's in Hitler's army, but then he kind of befriends this Jew and, uh, you know, he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place on really what to do and things like that. Uh, of course, during all this is going on, he does have an imaginary friend who is actually Hitler in the movie. So, uh, so he's got to deal with that also. So, um, but that's a quick little synopsis on the movie. Um, now my thoughts on this one, uh, I was expecting, to actually really dig this one, uh, I will say, you know, because I really enjoyed the comedy from uh, What We Do in the Shadows, I thought that movie was executed brilliantly. The comedy was just so funny, so clever and things like that. Uh, although this movie does have um, moments of of being very clever and things like that, it, it, to me, it comes off more of a, as a drama. And I think that, you know, when you're trying to satire you know, these times, World War II, you know, the, the genocide of the Jews and things like that. It's, it's a very touchy and, and uh, it's a very touchy subject and it's hard to make light and actually do really, really well and funny. In this case, I think they did a decent job in making lighthearted of what had happened in World War II and things like that. But to me, it just didn't come off as being overly that funny. It was a little bit boring. It's a little bit drawn out too. It runs just under two hours and things like that. Even though I think the production value to this movie is insane. The acting is really good too. I mean, the set pieces and, you know, recreating the war scenes and stuff was fantastic. And there was some really kind of oddball and funny characters throughout the film and stuff. I just think it's overly sad and hard to satire when you're when you have this 10 year old boy who believes that war and being a Nazi is like a life goal. And, you know, just the whole aspect of that is is really touchy and, and it's hard to accept. But, you know, with that said, man, you know, there is some really good moments in the movie and things like that. I just didn't really honestly care for it that much. Uh, like I said, you know, it's supposed to be a comedy, a satire and things like that. So. You know, for me, I had high expectations coming off the other films that he's done with the the comedic elements and things like that. But it just didn't it just didn't come off as being that funny to me. It, it almost too goofy. And then, you know, accompanied by some very serious moments in the film, too, that really kind of divert it from the comedic elements of it also, which I understand the social commentary and what's going on in the movie and stuff like that. But, you know, as a whole, when you watch a thing read from start to finish, it starts out actually really funny because it has this like German version of uh, the Beatles. Uh, I want to hold your hand, uh, which is kind of funny in itself because the Beatles weren't around during World War II, <laughs> but they have this like cover song. And I thought that was kind of funny, but um, you know, visually and, you know, you know, aesthetically, the movie was really, really fantastic, man. Actually, JoJo's mom is played by the beautiful uh, Scarlett Johansson, who I thought did a really fantastic job with her, you know, German accent and stuff like that. It actually did a really good job. And the guy that plays the imaginary Adolf Hitler actually did a really good job. It's almost too goofy, but I, I guess if you're going to have an imaginary friend who is Adolf Hitler, you're going to have to make him super goofy and things like that. So some of those moments were kind of good and stuff, but it's just got this very unbalanced mixture of like satire and like seriousness and you know it's going on that it doesn't really work for myself i know a lot of people really enjoyed this movie and i can see why uh but like i said i just found it a little bit tedious at times um i don't know man i i i thought it was pretty average overall you know as a movie itself aesthetically wise and you know spec wise it's beautiful it does a lot of good things and stuff but narrative wise i don't know man it just it didn't really pack a lot of 
I just didn't pack a lot of heat for myself. Uh, Sam Rock- Rockwell is also in the movie as a captain. Uh, he does a pretty good job also. Um, in fact, the cast is actually really well done here. Uh, there's this like little fat German soldier kid that's actually really funny in the movie too. But um, but overall, man, I was disappointed. I'm going to come in about a 5 out of 10 for myself. Uh, you know, entertainment value, I was just kind of like, it was a mixed bag for myself. But um, I will say... If you're a fan of what we do in the shadows and, you know, Thor and things like that, definitely check it out. You know, it's not a, it's not a poorly made film whatsoever. You might get more enjoyment out of it than I did. It's just fucking with this, uh, you know, this type of social commentary and this content is, you know, I just don't really find it overly that funny. So, but yeah, that is Jojo Rabbit from 2019. Next up for me is The Eyes of My Mother, which is from the year 2016. This is a Patreon pick. I'm not exactly sure who gave this to me, but I do want to thank you, whoever you are, because this is a film that I've been wanting to get to for a while. I actually did own this film. I missed it back in 2016, so it feels good to finally get to it. Uh, It was released by Magnet Releasing, directed by Nicholas Peace, who is... The guy who actually directed and wrote The Grudge, which is weird, uh, The Grudge 2020, because that movie is horrible and The Eyes of My Mother is really good. So I'm not exactly sure what happened, how how that film turned out so bad. Um, but yeah, The Eyes of My Mother, very interesting film. It's his directorial debut. It is a black and white horror film, and it basically follows this girl throughout her life. Uh, when she's a young kid, she... Uh, it, it lives with her mother and father on this farm. Her mother teaches her how to remove eyeballs from, from animals. Uh, one day in sort of a bizarre out of nowhere esque scene, this film feels very unconventional in its storytelling and, and how things happen in it. It's, it, it's, uh, script outline is not very similar to, to any type of movie. It's kind of unpredictable. Uh, but this door to door salesman kills, uh, this girl's mother. The father comes in and knocks out the door to door salesman. They basically chain him up in the barn, cut out his vocal cords, remove his eyes. And she becomes, uh, he becomes a friend to the little girl. Uh, the little girl grows up, her father dies. Um, she becomes sort of a killer and, you know, captures people, cuts out their vocal cords, you know, um, ties them up in the barn and stuff like that. I actually watched this film back in like January february it's now april so that's been quite a while ago we were supposed to do a what we watch segment on 22 shots so i did watch this film for then i didn't rewatch it but it, it is you know semi good in my memory all things considering uh i remember thinking that the film just looked very beautiful and it's kind of a disturbing and and um you know, vicious story. And you kind of are just like wondering where it's going to go because like I said, it's super unpredictable. Uh, I really dug the film. Uh, I thought the acting was good. The visuals are good. Um, the black and white really, really fits this film. And, uh, overall just, just a very solid effort from, uh, Nicholas piece here. And, um, I give it a eight out of 10, very solid watch. Wow. JP, you've just fucking killing those reviews. All right, so moving along here into my next uh, Patreon pick. This has come in courtesy of Fan of Eli, and he picked 1988's Edge of the Axe, directed by Jose Ramon Lawrence, who has been getting some mad love from some niche uh, releasing companies recently, specifically Arrow, who actually released a box set full with uh, three films and also this film and uh, Deadly Manor. 
uh, it's crazy, man, how much love that he's been getting in the uh, last year or so. Um, Lawrence actually has had kind of almost like two different type of careers, man. He started out his career with a couple decent films like The House That Vanished and Symptoms, which is fantastic, Vampires. And he went into some kind of weird ones, Resurrected back in the 80s uh, with Stigma. And then he did that ultra uber strange Black Candles. And then late 80s, he decided that he wanted to capitalize on, you know, the popularity of the American slash your film and stuff and then he ended up doing like rest in peace this edge of the axe deadly manner and stuff like that so um kind of an interesting guy and uh, this is actually the second to last horror film that Lawrence actually directed um before he i uh, did a couple more projects and then just kind of fell off in them so um but essentially the uh, synopsis of edge of the axe is very very simple it's uh basically about a dude that is ravaging this small little uh town and he's killing off women and people uh a mass maniac with an axe just hacking them up and stuff and that's pretty much what the synopsis is um so my thoughts on the movie now with a very simple overdone premise like that we've seen this a million times where there's a masked maniac with a wheeling an axe who's just hacking up random people and stuff and uh but what this movie why this movie separates itself from the norm and you know the typical early 80s tropes and things like that is that it feels a little bit more grown up this one isn't you know your typical backwoods slasher film with you know a bunch of really stupid characters and uh it's you know with a bunch of stupid characters that are just out having sex and dying that way and stuff this one actually follows like adults, you know, pretty damn smart adults and things like that. So, you know, the characters are a lot different in this film. It definitely has a different feel because it's more or less a murder mystery because we have absolutely no idea who is behind this max and, you know, hacking up all these people. So, you know, the police are involved and actually at first it's kind of an interesting narrative because the sheriff, you know, who runs this town very, very, you know, very tight uh, wants to just kind of rub off these murders as accidents and stuff. He really doesn't want to admit that there may be a problem and stuff. It's kind of like the most almost stereotypical, you know, blind sheriff that just doesn't want to admit there's a problem. But I kind of like it that he does come around and stuff. But, you know, essentially it leads to a full-blown investigation and stuff. And, you know, it almost plays out like... Um, almost like a giallo i mean there's a full-blown investigation it's it doesn't have all the elements of a giallo but you know as we get to see the killer that's mass and stuff like that but uh but you know there's a lot of red herrings and things like that are that are leading to the killer so there's a lot of similarities between a giallo um without the pov killings and stuff but uh it does share similarities um but you know going back to what separates this one from you know just kind of you know, run of the mill type slasher film is that the characters here are actually smart. You know, there's a lot of smart dialogue. There's a lot of good acting in this too. A lot of good set pieces and things like that. It's, it's just overall really, really well done. Um, you know, he came, he was just coming off a of rest in pieces. Lawrence was just coming off a of rest in pieces. And, uh, that one was such a strange kind of supernatural, just weird oddity film. This one kind of gets to down to more of a basic narrative but uh, I think he executed this narrative quite cleverly, to be honest, because while you're watching this movie, you really have no idea and you're not supposed to have any idea. But the problem is with these type of narratives is that, you know, when you have the killer revealed, sometimes it can be like, well, that doesn't make any fucking sense because it could have been anybody. Uh, but I feel like when the reveal comes in this movie, you it kind of sparks something and you're like, oh, shit, totally. Right. And, you know, you kind of think back on how it developed and stuff and you're like, oh yeah, okay, that could, that 
totally can work. So I give him props for doing that. You know, it's not like he just threw this person into it and there was no explanation leading towards that at all. Um, so I do like that. Uh, the movie does have a fair amount of kills. I think the kills are actually quite good. And the movie starts out with a really fucking good kill too. Actually, kind of a very creative one. Something I hadn't seen before. It may have been done since, but I mean, this movie came out in 1988. There'd been hundreds of slasher films by this point in time. You know, pretty much every type of kill. It seemed like it had been done. This was kind of an interesting premise because it was done in, in the daylight in a, in a car wash and stuff. So I thought that was actually kind of a cool kill. So, and the cooler and, and the killer actually does look cool. I like the white mask and the wheeling the, the big shiny axe and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of really cool elements here, man, in the film. And like I said, you know, what really separates this movie from, you know, shitty low budget run of the mill slashers is the fact that the acting and the characters are a little bit older. And there's a lot of little differences in this also. You know, it's a small town, but, you know, there's a there's kind of a relationship between our main character, Lillian, and Gerald, who, um, you know, share their love for computers and stuff. And they they talk to each other over this, over this computer. And this is like pre-internet days, which is kind of interesting how they do this. It almost seems like they're talking on like a messenger. So they communicate like this and they see each other in person and stuff like that. But they have this like whole commuter, computer connection type deal, which is something you generally don't see in movies like this. Like I said, you know, the narrative is a little bit more developed than just a typical backwood slasher film and uh you know like a sorority house slasher film so i give him props for trying this out and you know even though this one didn't really become like a huge hit and stuff i think it's a little bit underrated as a film uh it does a lot of really good things um so i do highly recommend this one uh edge of the axe 1988 i'm going to come in about a seven and a half out of ten i think it's definitely definitely worth the while and could be thrown in that pile of uh you know overlooked or underrated slasher films because let's face it a lot of the films that were coming out in the later 80s slasher based were just clones and just copycats and just a lot of them were so run-of-the-mill that they were just absolute trash it's kind of a shame that this one took so long to get you know a decent release so more people could actually see it and check it out in in it's all of its high def glory and stuff so um yeah, definitely check out Edge of the Axe. Uh, thank you, Fanny Eli, for picking this one. I actually ended up watching this movie twice because I'd watched it, I think, just before you had actually picked it, and then I just rewatched it. So, uh, But lo and behold, it's a fun one, so check it out. All right, we have Holla from the year 2006. Not holler, holla. Don't run, haul ass is the tagline. <laughs> um man this one okay what what is that quote on the cover oh i wish i could see that it says single-handedly raises the bar for urban horror i don't even know who says that um because it's kind of faded but that's funny uh so it tells the story of a tv star who is stranded with seven of her friends in a cabin on the grounds of camp diamond creek also trapped with the group is a murderous psychopath um honestly guys this movie is pretty average um i kind of don't even remember it that much uh it does follow a group of black characters uh there is one token white guy um it's it's a kind of what how i described it is a average slasher with below average technique um it really doesn't have much to offer in terms of visuals or kills or gore or anything like that just kind of a basic film and the script is 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 very generic and and the ending is very generic the reveal of the killer and stuff like that um i just honestly wasn't really too into this one 
it's uh, a film that uh, you know you can you can get fun out of these type of movies um, the generic t- slashes from the mid 2000s but um, if you're not in the mood for them they really don't hit too well uh, I do like um, urban quote unquote horror films uh, where you have um, an all black cast um that adds a little bit of a different culture to the the film i do like that but uh so often i feel like the effort is so poor uh minus films like tales from the hood that you know it almost you almost wish that somebody with a a little more talent would would uh do one of these type of films and there, there are a couple out there um but yeah it's uh it's it's okay um i gave it a five out of ten well, thank you, JP, for that informative review once again. All right, so moving along here into another Patreon pick coming courtesy of the man, Tony Hartman himself. And he picked a film that I've seen many, many times uh, from 1988, Cannibal Campo, directed by John McBride. Yeah, the shot on video classic. Um yeah, John McBride, man, I always felt like had a lot of heart, you know, in his early films, you know, shot on video type quality films. But uh, yeah, he always definitely had, you know, a lot of heart and put a lot of charm into these things. Um, he also went on to direct uh, Woodchipper Massacre in 1988, which is like, it's another shot on video film, but it's one of those films where there's like one good scene and the whole movie's like filler. <laughs> so, uh, but then shockingly enough, he actually directed 1996's Feeders. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Went on to do Terror House and things like that. And I always wondered why, like, he didn't continue doing films. I mean, he shot movies right up in 2005, which I haven't really seen too many of his newer ones. But I really do respect the early uh, shot on video stuff that John McBride was involved in. But um, basically, the uh, synopsis of Cannibal Campout is something that we've all seen a million times. It's about a group of, like, five friends that... Uh, decide to head to the wilderness, the isolated wilderness for some R&R, drinking, sex, you know, the typical type stuff. And of course, uh, before they fully get into their campsite, they have a run-in with these um, these three brothers and uh, shit kind of goes down with them. And then, you know, they get to their campsite and then, of course, shit goes down. <laughs> uh, so that's the synopsis. My thoughts on Cannibal Campout. Like I said, man, I respect John McBride for everything that he did, you know, with these shot on video days and stuff. You know, he put a lot of effort and a lot of heart into these movies, you know, by, you know, challenging himself and doing decent shots for what you have when you're working with shot on video type equipment and stuff. You generally don't have multiple cameras. You got one camera and things like that. So you know, that type of editing where it's, you know, one shot to the next shot kind of thing. But, you know, he managed to even throw in some decent transition shots, some overhead shots that he managed to do and stuff. And, you know, that just kind of shows that you're trying to make a legit film when you have decent transitions and, you know, even kind of putting together your own soundtrack and stuff that's not fully based off a Casio keyboard. Uh, It may have been, but the music actually is a little bit better here. But what I really do like about this is that he not only, you know, fledged this out to about an 87 minute film, you know, it doesn't actually run it. It it doesn't overstay its, its welcome, to be honest, because the characters are likable enough here that you actually like are interested in what they're talking about and what they're joking about and stuff. I mean, none of the characters are really too much over the top or not annoying. They're not just your typical stereotypical type characters that are in the, you know, slasher narrative. Um, you kind of enjoy these, man. John McBride, I, I feel like just totally plays himself, but, uh, um, 
you know, of course, you've got a couple guys that, you know, that's with the crew that, uh, you know, that are into horror films and want to play some jokes and things like that. But, you know, all that stuff is kind of interesting. And uh, what really kind of sells this movie is the the three brothers and like their motives for becoming cannibals and stuff. Essentially, what it is, is that, you know... <laughs> It actually still kind of makes me laugh to this day. Their mom said that there's way too much preservatives and junk food and fast food and stuff. You got to keep it uh, a little bit more simple and you know clean. So this is how they become cannibals. And uh, this is like her last dying wish that they eat healthy <laughs> before she dies. So, of course, you know, when the people come into their territory, they are going to be on the menu. Um I will say, you know, the kills are spread out enough in this that, you know, it it, it keeps you interested. Uh, you know, sometimes in these movies, you'll have like a bunch of kills so close together and then there'll be tons and tons of filler and stuff. I think the it's paced out kind of pretty decently in this one, man. You know, like I said, 87 minutes. It's... Uh, it doesn't feel overly long, which is a really, really good thing. But what really kind of sells this movie is, you know, John put a lot of heart into the effects and stuff. The blood actually does look good. The 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 kills are decent. You know, um, they're not like reinventing the wheel or anything. But, you know, like I said, the blood get, looks good. The gore actually looks pretty decent and stuff. But the last 30 minutes is what really sells this movie is, you know, you get a lot of overacting from these backwood cannibal kind of hillbilly brothers and stuff. It's kind of funny, too, because one of the brothers actually wears like a fighter pilot helmet with, you know, the big oxygen hose on it and stuff so you never really do see his face and one of the brothers is completely overacting to the point where it's it's utterly ridiculous but it's actually super entertaining because you're like the fuck there's this like nobody like this but he's like trying to be good though at the same time it's not trying to be super bad which again that's what i like about this movie everyone's trying to do good it's you know john mcbride wasn't trying to make a bad movie you can tell the way it's edited the way everything's kind of written and you know it's definitely coming from a horror fan you know and that's i respect the hell out of that so but um the last 30 minutes of the movie is really what sells this one it gets a little bit crazy it probably has one of the most distasteful endings of all time in a movie but it fucking works and it's awesome you know i think this is the way movies should be a lot more of the time you know just straight you know just not happy you know downbeat endings and things like that i think it's great um so i mean if you're into shot on video films especially from this era like from the 80s the real shot on video films definitely give cannibal camp out a look um you can get the dvd from camp motion pictures on the retro 80 80s horror collection line which i love uh, they released pretty much everything from that era and uh it's probably the best way to to seek it out you know i mean the transfer shot on video but it actually is one of the better looking ones and uh, yeah, I'm going to give this one about a 9 out of 10. This is based off my shot on video scale. Uh, I kind of put shot on video films on a different level of rating, but it's so entertaining and it's just fun. But um, yeah, Cannibal Campo from 1988. All right, next up we have Psychos in Love 1987. This was also given to me by Jelly Bane. Uh, it says a strip joint owner and a manic, Curists find that they have many things in common, the foremost being that they are psychotic serial killers. They fall in love and are happy being the family that slays together until one day they come up against a plumber who happens to be a cannibal. Uh, this movie is actually really fun. It's, it's sort of a satire uh, amongst other things. Uh, in terms of like this this spoofy type of horror film it's it's very interesting um i always find it interesting when 
you have films in the eighties like this. Cause that seemed like something that happened in the two thousands or the, the nineties with spoofing horror films. But I guess that's just when I noticed it, but these things have ad- ad- uh, existed for a very long time. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it, it, the only thing that I think that I don't like about this movie is it, the joke just kind of wears thin, um, kind of fast, uh, by the end of the film, you're kind of like rolling your eyes, like, okay, I, I, I get it. Um, but the, the opening narration where the guy's talking about this girl and then there's a funny joke because he actually kills her in a direct sort of, um, I, I, it almost felt like it was a shot for shot, uh, attempt at the shower scene in psycho, which I just thought was great. Um, and then you have this bit with these grapes, like I hate grapes. I hate them peeled, unpeeled, skinless. I hate them green. I hate them, uh, purple. I hate them big or small. I hate grape juice i hate grape sandwiches like it's just that that joke um comes back a few times and it's kind of funny um but overall if you've never seen this film it's it's definitely you know a interesting um little film here uh not sure who put it out but i I definitely want to grab a copy eventually so that's psychos in love i gave it a six and a half out of ten Oh, yeah. Thank you for that awesome review, JP. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so moving along here uh, with my next Patreon pick coming from uh, Tyler. From 1997, we got Princess Minoki. This is uh, an anime uh, film that was done by Tahoe, actually. I've always known about this one, never seen it before. I imagine this was probably picked because uh, I've been watching a lot of anime films and this is one that I had not seen before. So, uh, getting into a quick little synopsis of this one. Basically, this one is uh, follows our main character of Ashtika, who is stricken with a curse in the beginning of the film, protecting his village from uh, a demon that is trying to attack. Um, and it stricken like his right arm. He gets uh, cursed with this uh, from this demon. And uh, basically, what happens to him is that he, you know, is kind of given like superhuman strength. And, uh, but the problem is it's, it's going to spread through his body and eventually kill him. So the villagers tell him to travel to the West, um, to find like this dear God, um, that could possibly lift the curse and save his life, but he's still not able to return back home, I think. Um, so of course he makes his way West where he comes across this, uh, small little mining community, uh, ran by lady, uh, Iboshi. And she's like the big head haunch ironclad type later type deal who runs this um you know this mining community and stuff and the thing is with this community they're actually at battle with uh princess minoki and um you know she is actually a person that was raised by animals so she considers herself to be an animal and stuff but they're actually at war and what happens is when um our main character uh ashtaka he gets involved in this and he becomes kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place and you know um, between their battle and stuff and then you know he tries to defend either side and that becomes an issue and then more problems arise from there um so that is a quick little synopsis of the film now my thoughts on this movie it's actually really really well done um i think there's just there's a lot of story here just a ton and ton of story i think one viewing doesn't really do it a lot of justice but i do like the idea of you know the curses and you know the demons and and, uh, you know, just the whole kind of 
grounded narrative here um there's just a lot of characters man there's just a lot of characters you know you got the the forest gods and you got the you know the deer god and you got you know this mining community and stuff which are the humans who are fighting the you know the the animal gods and shit like that because they've got their own beef and and when he comes in it kind of stirs everything up and it gets kind of crazy man there's just a there's a lot going on i was surprised by some of the scenes of um you know ashtaka you know battling samurais and shit like that it, it's pretty interesting because because he'll, he'll shoot these things with bows and fully decapitate them and you know their arms and legs will go flying off and she's kind of funny actually i wasn't expecting it to be uh overly graphic kind of horror level like that because given what the storyline was you know it seemed like it was going to kind of play itself a little bit more leveled out but uh you don't get a whole lot of that but there is a lot of blood and gore and stuff i like a lot of the fight scenes with you know the boars and the humans and shit other demons and shit get pretty bloody and stuff so you know it all along it's a pretty good ride uh, i did watch the japanese version not the american dubbed one so um but uh, the, my main problem with this movie is it's just a little bit too long i think there's a lot of story here and i think it honestly could be condensed down a little bit this one runs you know over two hours like close like two hours 15 minutes something like that i feel like there is scenes where it does completely slow down and stuff uh, which is kind of a problem when you're watching these movies because, I mean, really, you're watching anime, you want a little bit more, you know, kind of action and stuff, which you do get a lot in the third act, but I think, you know, the first, you know, I mean, there, there is long stretches of time in this movie where it's just kind of story building up, you know, things and that and stuff, and I'm like, okay, okay, let's get to this. Um, but that was kind of my main gripe with it. I do want to watch this one again, you know, way later down the road, kind of absorb it a little bit more, but, you know, I did have a lot of fun with it. I thought the animation was great. You know, this, like I said, there's so much development in the story, which is kind of cool in itself, maybe almost a little bit too much to to absorb you know like i said for one time watch and stuff like that but overall it's it's actually a really really solid film it's definitely a lot more gory and a lot more graphic than i was expecting it to be considering it's not even labeled as a horror it's like you know animation adventure fantasy type thing but you know it does have those moments and the battle scenes are pretty cool um just a lot going on but uh, i had a lot of fun with this i'm gonna come in at about a seven out of ten i know it's probably crazy because most people are up at like you know eights and nines and even tens on this one and stuff but again you know i mean a lot of the story i did care about i think it just gets a little bit too intricate at times and it could be simplified a little bit especially with a quick little edit but you know it is what it is princess minoki i know it's considered classic and uh but you know the animation is fantastic you know the voices are great and stuff but um yeah so that's princess minoki uh from 1997 all right and last up for me is altered from the year 2006 this one was given to me via patreon thanks to mikey fish and this film is directed by eduardo sanchez of course from the blair witch project fame he also did a segment in vhs2 lovely molly uh he he directed exists um as well as uh the seventh moon um i actually very much enjoy this filmmaker's work uh so the film altered uh says 15 years ago a group of men's lives were forever changed by a strange occurrence now the same group of men will spend a night together in terror so basically these guys were abducted by aliens and they capture an alien uh and they basically um you know hold it hostage uh man i'll say the alien in this film looked pretty good the practical effects were good. The acting was a little spotty, but you know, it was overall, you know, pretty solid. 
Um, the the story itself was was really interesting and and a lot of fun. I, I love the alien abduction abduction angle. There are actually some you know scary scenes in this one. Uh, it's an engaging story. Um, the only thing I would have liked to see a little bit more character development, maybe some more well-written characters and, and people who you could kind of get on board with or root for or root against or whatever. But overall, I mean, this is, this is a pretty solid gem here. Mikey fish coming in clutch again with, uh, another gem of a horror film. Like he does a lot of times. So, uh, we, I actually watched this with Mikey on a, uh, Facebook watch party. So that was a good time. Me and me and a couple guys, uh, Johnny as well. I said, I think maybe Will was there, Derek or something. We had, we had a good time with this one, but if you've never seen Altered, definitely check it out. It's a, it's a pretty good, um, alien film. I, I dig it. Uh, give it a seven out of 10. Wow. JP. Wow. All right. So moving along here, uh, to another pick from Tyler from 1965, we've got Roman Polanski's repulsion. Uh, it actually been a long time since I've watched this movie, and it's kind of interesting rewatching a classic movie like this uh, with, you know, more of a different eye. You know, I was noticing a lot more things and kind of critiquing things a lot differently than I'd, you know, previously watched it. And uh, yeah, so if you're not familiar with Repulsion, it's kind of like the first part in his uh, apartment trilogy, along with Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant, um, which is pretty cool because, of course, all three films take place in apartments the majority of the films take place in apartments. So, um, yeah, so this is, uh, uh, repulsion from 1965. Quick little synopsis. Uh, basically this one is about two sisters that are living together by the names of Carol and Helen. Helen is kind of the older sister that has a boyfriend and likes to wild out and stuff. She's just a little bit more chirpy, has a personality and things like that. Her younger sister, Carol, um, is very much a person that is pretty much disgusted with with males. Um, in particular, uh, her sister's boyfriend. She she just has this really huge distaste for him and always expresses how much she hates her sister's boyfriend and stuff like that. You know, and uh, the thing about Carol is that you know she's odd in personality too. She kind of walks around in a daze, just says oddball things. You know, she's just very kind of disconnected with reality and stuff like that. Um, and this is shown, you know, for the first kind of quarter of the film that you know she's definitely got some kind of mental instabilities going on there and things like that. So when uh, Helen and her boyfriend decide to go on vacation, Carol's left at home by herself. And that's when things kind of take this drastic turn. You know, she starts to have crazy visions and nightmares and things like that. And shit just kind of goes off the rail and off the hinges a little bit for Carol. So uh, that's the synopsis. Now my thoughts on this movie. Um, basically this is a masterpiece. This is an absolute masterpiece in filmmaking. I mean, you know, I, I absolutely love everything about this movie. I love the fact that this is shot in black and white. I love the fact that it's it's a very quiet film. It really focuses on, you know, the characters. It focuses on Carol and her demeanor and, and the way she's seeing things and things like that and what's, what's going around her. Um, you know, there's very subtle hints in this movie to why she is disgusted and repulsed by men and, and sex in general and things like that. You know, there's a shot in the beginning of the film where... It actually kind of focuses on her family picture with her sister and her mom and her father and stuff. And 
I, I've always kind of led to believe that, you know, her indiscretions with and her disgust and repulsion with <clears throat> with males is coming straight from her father. Maybe she was possibly, you know, abused and stuff like that. And it's kind of affected her entire life. I don't know. It's, you know, it's up for debate on what exactly the problem is here. But there's very subtle things in, in the way Polanski, you know, addresses these issues and the way he kind of focuses on the narrative in this film. And it's fantastic, man. You know, there's lots of scenes where she's just kind of looking in a daze. And, you know, throughout the whole film, you hear like a clock ticking. You know, that ticking from a clock. And I always kind of see that as a metaphor for, you know, her kind of, uh, you know, she's a she's a ticking time bomb. She's literally a ticking time bomb. You know, any day she might just snap and go off the rails and start hurting males because she has such a distaste for him. So you kind of have that metaphor playing throughout the whole film. There's scenes where, you know, there's she'll look at the wall or touch a wall or something and it'll literally crack. It'll just crack. You know, it's definitely in her mind. She's hallucinating this type of shit. But another another metaphor for kind of cracking and stuff like that. There's these really, really great and very effective nightmare scenes in this movie where, you know, she's just ter- She's having these visions of males and hands and things like that and stuff. And I think that's really the way to make a horror film. You know, it's a little bit more subtle. It's not relying on jump scares and overdone scores and stuff. It's, it's quiet. It's visual. It's, it's very, very effective. Um, you know, I think her acting really kind of pulls it off too. She really does seem like she's either like on fucking downers or something, man. She pulls it off quite well in this movie, but you know, I love these type of movies that, you know, keep you intrigued by not being explosive and loud and stuff. You're just kind of following this character and you're going, damn, like what the fuck's going to happen next? What's going to set her off and shit? There's just tons and tons of little things in this movie. Like there's this really kind of weird, strange thing going on with, um, you know, what the sister Helen had actually cooked up for dinner one night. She cooked up like this rabbit. It's like they pull this full rabbit out of the fucking like fridge. It's been skinned. It's on a, on a platter and stuff. And again, I was watching this thing with my wife and she's like, what the fuck? That's crazy. But you know, Carol is such in a daze and in her own little world and stuff. She pulls this thing out later, a couple days later and kind of leaves it out and stuff. And it, it's weird metaphors like that, that kind of fit into the narrative so perfectly and stuff. Um, I don't want to get into every single one and all my thoughts on that shit, but you can kind of get it where this movie's a little bit more subtle and it's, it, it plays off the, you know, your psyche a lot, you know, it's a psychological thriller at times, but um, this does, this one just does everything right. I think this might even be one of the very first movies to actually showcase a female killer. Also, if I'm not mistaken, I might not be a hundred percent on that one, but I, it's very early for 1965 to showcase, you know, a female in the lead and who also is potentially a killer and, you know, doing this type of stuff, this disruptive stuff in society is kind of interesting, but, uh, yeah, I love the way this one develops, man. Some of the kill scenes are, are really, really shot well. And um, you can see where a lot of influences come from this film, not only having the, the you know, the female killer, but just the way these things were shot and the way there's certain scenes that are kind of framed and things like that. You can see that in a lot of other people's type of work. Very influential film. And this is very much one of the films that, you know, had to be on the top hundred influential horror films of all time, because without a question, when you watch this, you know, from metaphorical speaking and just technical films making aspects, you know, this one is a staple in filmmaking. You know, there's nothing to be said bad about this one at all. I think everything is perfect in it. I just rewatching it. I was like, just kind of taken back at like how amazing, you know, everything is in this movie and it goes to prove that you know minimal minimal output sometimes means it can just be so much more and i'm talking about you know things 
like score and sound and things like that and just kind of you know really kind of subtly doing shots and things you know some directors just do it overboard you know and it's too much but this is just done so much better and you know i i i absolutely loved rewatching this movie it's just fantastic uh roman polanski's repulsion 1965 i'm coming in at a perfect 10 out of 10 on this one it is just an amazing piece of art everyone needs to see this one and you know it's crazy to think you know between this one rosemary's baby and the tenant you know as a trilogy like this might might even be one of the most perfect trilogies ever made it really is it's like three phenomenal films three very influential films uh, in their own aspect and stuff so um yeah man repulsion such an amazing film everybody needs to check it out if you've never seen it before and it just really want makes me want to watch rosemary's baby again and uh, the tenant even which i just actually kind of recently watched the tenant again for 72 but um yeah so that's repulsion from 1965 all right so my last film here is from 2013 and it is titled under the skin this is sort of a sci-fi horror film starring scarlett johansson Uh, it was directed by jonathan glazer who i'm not too familiar with uh i think that he was a music video director for the most part and this seemed to be um one of his more popular films i actually think this was the last film he actually directed in terms of uh you know feature films uh so the film basically follows a woman played by Scarlett Johansson, who is seducing and luring men into her uh, web, if you will. And she basically like consumes them or traps them in this sort of nether realm. I assume that she wants to, you know, feed on them or something. She basically transports them into this void and she kind of undresses and they follow her. They seem almost like hypnotized and they follow her into this liquid that she can walk on and they walk down into and then they're submerged into this weird sort of voidless abyss type thing. And yeah, it's it's kind of weird, man. Um, she follow she picks up a couple people. There's one guy that she picks up who's sort of deformed, if you will. Uh, so this film, I mean, I don't really know what to say about it. It was an A24 release, very interesting movie. I was definitely into it the entire time. I just think that like, you're not really told what exactly this woman is. Is she some sort of succubus or an alien life form? We know very little about her. Uh, she is you know, unclothed a few times in the film. I couldn't tell. It almost looked like there was some CG um, on her body, but I, I couldn't tell for sure because the void itself seems a little CG-ish, but um, it just looks very glossy. But that could be an aesthetic that they're looking for too and not just, you know, CG. So uh, I didn't, you know, hate that at all. And then also... The music is just very, very good in this film. It, it makes the entire experience, you know, that much better. Um, visually, it's good. Uh, it it has a interesting narrative and it keeps you intrigued and stuff. Uh, there's there's a few even like shocking moments in it. One involving a, a child and another one involving the end of the film. 
uh, it seems like it, it, it kind of reminds me of like, just like a black widow, you know what I mean? Like capturing the prey and, you know, it reminds me of a spider, but like, instead of a spider web, it's like this void that, you know, I'll come back and feed on you later. But yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty cool film, man. I, I dug it. I, I think that it's pretty good. It's uh, eight out of 10. So check it out. Alrighty, so last up here for the What We Watched extravaganza, I hope you guys enjoyed it, uh, is a Patreon pick coming from a man, Jelly Bane. A film from 2017 called JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Diamond is Unbreakable, Chapter 1, directed by Takashi Miike. Now, I know this is based off a uh, uh, a manga, and an, I think it also turned into a an animated series also i think this movie was actually released on the 30th anniversary of the initial manga story back in the 80s i guess uh so this review right here is basically me not knowing anything about the history of this i've never read the manga i've never seen the the animated series or nothing i just went into this blind um as a bat uh you know it was picked for me and, uh, you know, I probably would end up checking this out anyways, because it is directed by Takashi Miike, like I said, and I'm a huge Takashi Miike fan. So, and I, you know, anything that he does, I know he, he dips into whole different types of genres and things like that. I'm always super, you know, stoked to check out what he's doing and stuff. But, um, you know, from what I've heard from people, they said some people really like this adaptation, this live action adaptation of the story. Uh, others didn't so but you're always going to get that with people that are very loyal to the source material and things like that but you know uh, but get into a quick little synopsis of this basically it follows our main character Jojo who has these uh, special kind of supernatural powers uh, you know and he's a teenager and he really doesn't understand why he has these powers all he knows is that he just has them um, you know one day he actually uses his power to stop like a robbery and um, basically what's happening is there's kind of like this evil supernatural um, what they call powers and stands. Their power is called the stand. Anyways, he stops the bank robbery from happening and ultimately gets into it with this uh, the serial killer because there's been people that have been getting murdered around the small town and it so happens to be this person and stuff. Um, which ultimately leads him back to the person that actually created this evil and has a showdown with him. So... Quick little synopsis on there. Uh, now, my thoughts on the movie. Um, I thought it was really interesting, man. I really like this whole idea of, you know, a superhero. I mean, it's it's typical type uh, superhero type stuff. You know, it's good versus evil kind of thing. Um, I really like the character of Jojo, though, because he was, you know, he's very naive to the fact of why he has these powers. It is explained a little bit in the film. I, I imagine I'm probably going to explain a little bit more in the future why, you know, it, you know, the curse and they they kind of they kind of give you that information that it's like a curse that it's been generations and generations back. Um, they call it a curse, but you know, it, in a sense, it's actually kind of a good curse because he uses his powers for good. And um, like his grandfather in the film was a was a police officer for thirty five years. He served and protected the community for thirty five years. And you know, he didn't really know and understand why he had these powers, but he was using them for good anyways. So ultimately that's what he ends up trying to do is just using them for good and stuff. And I, I kind of like this whole kind of story and stuff. They bring in this very kind of shy new kid to the, uh, into the story too, where, you know, he actually protects him from, you know, this entity that was, 
uh, robbing this bank and things like that. And he gets kind of drawn into it and he gets turned into someone that can has the stand power, which is really interesting. The cool thing about the stand, you know, it's like this supernatural entity that comes out of the human body and they kind of fight. And I think that's kind of an interesting premise. The other cool thing is it's very superhero-like where everybody has these different types of stands and what their abilities are. JoJo's in particular is the fact that he can actually heal the wounded. He can't bring people back from the dead, but he can heal the wounded. But unfortunately, he can't heal his own his own self when he's actually hurt. And, you know, it's pretty cool to see all these different type of stands happening. There's not a whole lot of different ones in the movie, maybe four or five different ones and stuff like that. But I think it's pretty interesting. You can tell this is definitely the start of like a series of kind of storylines and, you know, they can definitely develop on the story from here on out. It kind of gives you the basics of what's going on. But I thought the fight scenes were really cool, man. The, the you know, the, the CG in the film is absolutely amazing. It looks so damn cool. There's a scene where, you know, this evil kind of serial killer is uh, turned into, he's like a water stand. You know, he can turn into water and liquids and shit like that, man. The effects on that are just so fucking cool, man. Really, really well done. I thought they were absolutely amazing. And the and the third act is really weird and interesting because you think that it would just get super explosive with, you know, his showdown with this with this kind of evil, you know, supernatural stand and things like that. But it, it kind of goes like a different way. It's very strange. Um, it's I wouldn't say it's anticlimactic, but it's definitely a different way of ending the movie. It kind of ends with more story and, and you know, kind of ends like on a very positive note and kind of downbeat at the same time. It's very odd. But that whole sh- the, the showdown that you get to see is actually really cool. And it's kind of involving like his stand is really interesting. It has like this whole kind of like mini army and tanks and shit like that. And it's just you got to see it to believe it, man. It's very Takashi Miike-ish. I'm not sure if that's his own spin on it or if that's actually what the stands were in the Magna and the, you know, the animated series and whatnot. But I thought it was really cool. It's got, you know, this element of comedy in the movie too that's not, it's not, you know, overdoing anything. It's it's kind of subtle, but it's funny at the same time. But very, very likable characters. Uh, just, I had a blast with this. I thought it was a really, really fun movie. I actually can't wait for chapter two to come out. Whenever that's going to happen, whenever we get over this fucking coronavirus bullshit. But uh, yeah, man, it's just a very enjoyable type superhero, you know, good versus evil type film. Definitely something I would rather watch than Marvel bullshit. Um, I like my DC animated films, but this is really fun. I had a blast with this. I, I mean, I wish I wish it was a little bit more in depth with the story on this, but I can see where this is like the, the starting point. This is the development point to this, and there's definitely more chapters of this coming, but uh, I had a blast with it. I thought it was great. The other really cool thing about Jojo, he's got these really, he's got this really bizarre hair, and you know, if whenever someone talks shit about him, he kind of gets all worked up and shit about his hair because it's just you got to see it to believe it you know otherwise you just wouldn't believe it because i don't even know how the fuck you could possibly even do your hair like that it's absolutely insane to me but uh um but yeah really really fun film i'm gonna come in at about an eight out of ten on this one uh it runs about two hours i felt like it probably could have been a tad bit shorter but at the same time i wasn't bored at all and but that's typical Mike though man it seems like all his movies are like two hours long so uh, but yeah, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Diamond is Unbreakable, and that's explained in the film what Diamond, that's his um, his uh, stand. I keep wanting to call it the stand, I I, I don't know, it's weird, I, I it just seems like an odd name for like the supernatural ability, the, the stand, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that is going to do it for uh, this review, and yeah, hope you guys enjoyed. 
Yeah, and then I, I just I'll throw this out there. Um, there's a couple other things that we have. Um, American Psycho that'll be coming later this month or next month, and then I have a few more Patreon picks that you did guys didn't hear. Um, M, which I've had for a while from Jelly Bane, but I did review um, a couple of his other things, I think, and then uh, Blades, which I can't find, and then Inner Senses, which I can't find. Um, but I might hit up Dave and see if he has inner senses. It seems like somebody might have. So, um, yeah. 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 So, I mean, we we're back. Um, this is actually usually the time of year where we're getting prepared to like take our long break, but you know, given the mm-hmm. circumstances this year, I think that, uh, uh, we've actually planned out a bunch of shows. We're just going to finish off everything and then we're going to kind of assess what we're going to be doing after that. But, um, we do have a lot of big shows planned, man, you know, top 10, oh, 85, we got top 1085 next show. And then we got the Omen franchise. We're going to do American Psycho one and two. That'll be like a regular type show. I don't know how much news we're going to have in there. Probably nothing. <laughs> so actually there, there has been some news lately. Is there? Okay. Yeah. So that'll be kind of a normal show where we'll do some, what we watched American Psycho one and two, try to do some other segments and things like that. Then we're back on the horse with the, uh, um, with the franchise shows, Dave's going to be on. I split. On, I, I split on your grave. I split on your grave. I uh, hucked a loogie on your grave, um, and then we're going to do a disturbing cinema. Which we will be including vi- vi- uh, Savage Vengeance. Yes, the the eighty nine <laughs> unofficial sequel with the greatest dry hump rape scene. <laughs> um, and then we're going to do a disturbing cinema episode that was actually a Patreon to us, which is pretty cool. And then. Uh, another franchise with uh, the Wreck franchise, so <clears throat> we've definitely hit that mold again where we're doing a shitload of franchises, but people seem to like them, so it's just the way it's kind of worked out, but be on the lookout for those in the next couple weeks and all through May, so that's kind of lineup that you guys can expect to see, so for the people that are, st- I was going to say still listening, yeah, this will be, this is definitely the outro of the show, we're all fucking weird right now, <laughs> the way this shit's all <laughs> constructed, so um, but yeah, so if you're still listening, that's the lineup, and uh, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do with the Patreon. Do you have any ideas, JP? Uh, no, not right now. We're kind of going to reassess the whole thing, and you know, it's it. We're going to talk about it because we don't know what's going on with our third host right now, uh, as well, which changes some things. Um, Jeremy, you guys think I think he had a message last episode, but um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're not really sure. So we'll we'll talk about that at some point after I, I once we get all this stuff done that we're behind on i'll feel better about you know talking about what we're gonna do <laughs> yeah i mean yeah just expect guests on these shows we don't know who's coming up except for dave's gonna be on a show we know that for sure and just just expect guests you know yep so but uh yeah that is gonna conclude uh episode 179 hope you guys enjoyed all the uh the solo dub 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 reviews uh, a couple hours worth of those and um well we'll check you guys next week in the 85 show uh jp i was gonna call you jeremy (laughs) jp take us out here all right guys thanks for listening we do appreciate it i think you guys are uh probably enjoyed this episode i'm I'm gonna take a shot in the dark i i had fun recording it um and i actually had fun with these last two reviews here it's been a while since uh we've recorded um you know with just me and you too and that was fun so Mm um you know, check out all the stuff. We still have shirts for sale. If you guys are interested in that, I just wore one in a recent video. Um, and man, then I got to get some smaller sizes, man. Minor, I'm swimming in mine right now. I figured so. <laughs> like, the wife was wearing one the other day, and the wife's like, oh, "What is that? Your nighty?" 
that you're wearing yeah. there? I was like, oh, uh-huh. fuck. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So we have some shirts. Hit up Jeremy. He'll probably, he could probably send you one. Um, moods. And then if anybody wants to buy one, uh, we will uh, just, you know, PM us or something like that. Uh, check out our YouTube channels, Double Shot J, Mood 616. I'm probably going to finish my uh, last year's 31 <laughs> Days of Horror pretty soon because uh, I've had the time now. Uh, so we're going to do that. Um, check out his and her movie podcast with me and Carly. We have been weekly the entire year. So we've put out uh, like 15 episodes or something like that. New movie every week. Uh, as well as a bunch of other stuff. And we also just did a cool video, uh, a 12-hour marathon video. You can check that out on his and her YouTube channel. And then check us out on Twitter, 22 Shots Podcast, and Facebook group, 22 Shots Podcast, um, Facebook slash group slash 22 Shots Podcast. And uh, we will see you guys next week with the amazing 1985 Top 10 show feature featuring Derek, Dave, and Carly, as well as me and Moods. So, that's it. Yeah. See you then, motherfuckers.